Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. And tonight we have episode forty-four. We are going to be covering the top five nineteen seventy sci-fi movies. Frank, um, how did this list come about? I've already forgotten. Oh, it's because people actually people like the sci-fi episode. It seemed that oh, we right. did in the nineties, and so I had to find something palatable that I would want to talk about, right? Sci-fi wise, uh, and you chose this. Right, because this is like the, your era that you really watched a lot yeah, of sci-fi. There's actually a lot of sci-fi movies from the '70s that I really enjoy. Yeah, like there's a bunch of other stuff that could have made this list, honestly. Yeah, um, like Alien, which we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's episode one, maybe. Yeah, there's stuff like Soylent Green and Westworld and Logan's Run that I really enjoy that are all from the '70s. Um, they came close to making the list. Um, I don't know. I just I really like the aesthetic of, like, the way that people portrayed space in the 1970s and, like... What about it exactly? Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe it stems from, like, my love of Star Wars, but, like, I like... I like the practical effect of, like, filming a model and making it seem like it's in outer space. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the 70s gets less bogged down in the minutia of, like, the science part of the science fiction and it's more just about the fiction part which i think is one of the things i dislike about science fiction is when movies get too technical about i don't know like anything that would happen in like a scientific way like it's one of the reasons why i don't like interstellar because i think interstellar is too much about trying to be factually accurate about why things are happening as opposed to just being like an entertaining entertaining movie i can't remember have you gotten this is not a movie but it's television show have uh, how far have you gotten to the expanse the first season i've watched has that does that work well in terms of the sci-fi elements to you do you think they go too far and in- no i mean i think of the expanse more as like a noir that just happens to take place noir slash i don't know spy action serial that just happens to take place in space mm-hmm. the same reason why i like firefly you know i mean like I'm fine with things having, like, the elements of science to them. Like, you know, I mean, as ridiculous as it is, like, Star Wars is all about, like, warp warp drives and deflector shields and whatnot. But, like, it's just more about the story to me. And I, I like, you know, I, I like the fact that The Expanse is, like, a has, like, those detective noir elements to it. Mm-hmm. Like, set in outer space and... Firefly is like a western set in outer space, and that's so. Would you say that you kind of like your sci-fi to tend to cross over with the other genres at times? Yeah, and at least be like completely plot-driven, right? You know, one of the things that I can't stand about Star Trek in general is that it's more about the sciency elements. Maybe not all of Star Trek. I mean, I haven't like haven't watched as much as probably like most people that enjoy Star Trek, and I don't enjoy Star Trek. Um, but I always feel like it's too bogged down in the idea of, like, the science element of it. Right. Um, which is honestly why, like, the first, like, the original run of Star Trek more than any other, because it's more about, like, the philosophical, I mean, because obviously they didn't have the budget to film, like, grand, like, you know, space opera type stuff, but it's always about, like, philosophical and ideological things as opposed to, like, the sci-fi element of it. Right. And why I kind of dislike stuff like Next Generation from what I've seen, because I feel like that's more about 
like the sciencey part of science fiction. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, I, like I, I said, think I next gen weaves in and out of what you're talking about. Um, <clears throat> but my like my dad loved science fiction, and so when I was young, we would watch a lot of science fiction together. And he would like oh, I've read a lot of like Asimov and um, Bradbury and um some of the other like sci-fi writers from like the 60s and 70s and i always find that like any of the writers that like i like i, I like bradbury stuff because it's more pulpy to me than science fictiony but like asimov is just way too interested in himself and like talking about right. like the actual realistic application of science in terms of like the future and i don't know like i don't care about that shit so yeah uh, just out of curiosity, how do you feel about people like William Gibson and uh, what's his name uh, that everybody loves? Minority oh, right. Report, Blade Runner guy? Yeah. Um, Gibson's fine, I guess. I, I read a guy, I can't remember his name. He writes like historical science fiction, kind of. Yeah. Fuck, I can't remember his name. I read a couple books by him and it's fine. Like, um, what have I read? I guess I've read New Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. And something else. I don't know. Like I, it just kind of, it gets boring to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I, honestly, it's so like you look at like the dystopian trilogy or whatever you want to call it, like Brave New World, eighty four, nineteen eighty four, and we. And it's the reason why I like Brave New World the least because I feel like Brave New World is too interested in the technological aspects of like life in this dystopian future. Um, even though 1984 is like that too, like 1984 is more about like the philosophical ramifications of giving yourself up to a totalitarian society. Yeah. And there's a lot of things with like, it's, it's, it's more palatable mind control type thing in terms of like linguistics and like, you right. know, all those kind of things, which I think is to somebody like you and I much more interesting. And why like we, more i think too and like honestly because i think that because of what's his name Yevgeny Zemyaltin or whatever uh-huh. um was writing from like a totalitarian society that is more informed by like actual you know right like fascism as opposed to i don't even know if fascism is the right word but whatever you call that um socialism yeah so like communism more, yeah like hardcore communism yeah. um that is a more interesting book yeah so, but I find film adaptations of those books to be really dull. Right. Like I, even the, um, John Hurt 1984 from like the eighties, mm-hmm. it's just really dull to me and like, it looks nice, but I just, I don't know. I just get really bored watching like most science fiction. Yeah. I th- yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think there's something that's in Huxley's prose in that book that you can't really capture extremely well. Oh yeah. From Brave New World. I, I mean, I don't know why I don't like that book. It's one yeah. of my least favorite I was, books. I'd say the same thing as the Orwell. I mean, Orwell, I, I, I really like Orwell's writing style a lot. And yeah. I, I think it's really hard to capture some of the nuance. That, I agree. Like, in, in that hurt one you're talking about. Yeah. But yeah, the Huxley stuff, I think Huxley has a very specific writing style, too. Not one that I don't like as much, but uh, I actually like his essays and stuff more. But I... Uh, I think that's also kind of hard to film in some ways. I don't know if I've ever seen a film adaptation of Brave New World. Uh, I, 
I was thinking about that earlier today. I'd have reason. to look it up, but I'm pretty sure we had to watch one in school at one point. Nothing comes to mind for me. Yeah, we had to read Brave New World. They didn't make World. us read books. They just had us watch the movies of books a lot of times in right. my school. We read Brave New World when I was in ninth grade, I think, and I hated it in ninth yeah. grade. And I don't know. So do you have fond memories because of like watching these with your dad and stuff like that? Like Some, some of it, yeah. Some yeah. of it just because, like, I mean, as a kid, you know, because of Star Wars, like, I was pretty obsessed with the idea of space and... Um, in the late seventies, early eighties, there was a lot of toys and cartoons and like children's shows that were geared towards the idea of exploring space and the potential of, and like, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was like five or six years old. And, um, it, it became less, it, that's not true. Like I still love space. Like I love, we were just talking about this off air. Um, like I'll always look at like photographs of the planets and the stars and like that stuff is fascinating to me um but i like it more from like i don't know like almost like an aesthetic perspective and Mm -hmm. like an imaginative perspective as opposed to the like i don't care the carbon like i don't know whatever the fuck like they're like looking at like the spectrum of like some star from far away and talking like i don't give a shit about that like i just want to look at pictures of it Uh uh-huh yeah that's interesting. I because I feel similarly, and like we we were the generation that I think is a lot of times associated with sci-fi, like yeah, because of Star like but you because know, of Star Wars. Well, right, yeah, but I mean, I think we're associated a lot with like that kind, that particular strain of like uh geekdom i guess yeah. is well, something that like gets associated with gen xers a lot you look at a lot of our cartoons too that we grew up with i mean you had transformers you had um i don't know if star blazers was popular when you were a kid mm-hmm. but like star blazers was on in the mornings for me right um there was stuff like brave star and like the wheeled warriors and we had toys like starcom and stuff like there was yeah. a lot of stuff that was very right. like space oriented and it was just like part of the fabric of like your <clears throat> your childhood play and like imagination and stuff. Sure, so. I, I just find it really interesting that a lot of the people that I know, <laughs> and this includes friends of ours that are much more into things like sci-fi, still aren't into like that element, the the sciency element, as you said. Like those yeah. people existed in our generation certainly that were really into those kind of things but um i actually find it we even though we get associated with all that stuff it's like um i find it much more prevalent now than i did in our generation whatsoever. well and also i think our parents generation because my dad would read like popular science and was always watching like because we would watch nova together and we would watch um like other stuff on pbs that was much more geared towards you know, like, I love watching the National Geographic stuff, like, the science of, like, animals and the planet and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, again, I think it's more because it's the aesthetics of, like, seeing that filmed and, like, the way that, like, the David Attenborough stuff, like, the planet Earth and things like that. Like, the science of that is more interesting to me, again, than, like, number one also, and this is going to sound terrible, but, like, I don't believe half of it. Like, I think that they're all full of shit. Like, they don't fucking know, like, what's in those stars. Like, they're just guessing. It's just fucking lies. Oh, that is... Um, okay. I believe in science that's like empirical science. Like, if you can, like, 
test a hypothesis on Earth in a lab. Like, okay, like, I'll believe that. Like, right, you know, yeah. I'm not a Luddite or whatever, but, <clears throat> like, string theory and, like, the theory of black holes, like, go, go F yourself. Like, you don't know. Like, all these people sitting there with their math and their telescopes, like, they don't know anything. Okay. They're just going to be wrong in, like, 30 years or something when, you know, like... They, 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 they might be. Elon Musk wants to blow nuclear bombs up on the poles of Mars to, like, increase... Uh, co- come on. He, he, no. But listen, like, we're, that's we're, like, we're... that's like a Cobra Commander plot. Like, that's... <laughs> that's, I mean, and this is, like, the science. This, this is, really, no, this is, that's really unfair to use this Elon Musk bullshit as, like, your, your defense for your position. Look, he's the most prominent, like, science... <laughs> I don't know, whatever. He's also an asshole. Well, and troll. Like, I mean, it's... That doesn't mean that, I mean, like, seriously. Even if they're going to be wrong in 30 years, you have to do the stuff in order to be be wrong in 30 years to get to that point. Okay, but I don't have to pay attention to it. Okay. Like, when I'm I'm on my deathbed in 30 years and they're talking about, like, I don't know. I mean, you might as well... Talk about, like, the fucking phylogeny and the crystal spheres floating around. Because that's about how much we know about, like, really, like, outer space. Sure. We're not that much more advanced than we were in, like, the 1600s when they thought we were, like, fucking the sun rotated around us and we were bobbing around in, like, some goop in, like, God's we, fucking dreams. I think, I think dreams we know, or, some, I know. Some, some, some more than that. Some more things than that now. A little <laughs> Maybe. bit. Maybe. A little bit. <laughs> I mean, is, I just find it really this interesting. This is why I don't like science fiction. Right, uh-huh. I just find it really interesting that, um, you know, 30 minutes ago, you thought it was really cool about Lewis and Clark, like, you know, the the scientists tracking their feces containing mercury across the country. Because that's something that we can do. That's empirical science. They can actually do that. But it's like, but that gets us very little compared to what we already know, where it's like there's all these things we don't know and... You don't really care about... I do care, but, like, talk to me when you actually know something. Like, don't... All your made-up shit. Okay. About the stars. All right. We won't bore people with um, this anymore. <laughs> I... <clears throat> we'll talk about this in a couple hours. You want to go ahead and get started, then? Yeah. All right. So, number five on your list is Black Hole from 1979. It's directed by Gary Nelson, starring Maximilian Schell, Anthony Perkins, Robert Forster... Joseph Bottoms, Ernest Borgnine. It has a 41% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 45% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the plot of this movie and what you like about it so much? There's a team of scientists that are on board a exploratory vessel called the Palomino that are out looking for data on a black hole. <clears throat> um, they come across a ship called the Cygnus that was long thought to be abandoned. Um, turns out that it's piloted by... Um, one lone scientist who's like the survivor of the crew and his team of androids and robots that are helping maintain it. Um, through a series of events, they find out that, um, the androids are actually the crew of the original Cygnus that mutinied and then were like lobotomized and turned into slaves. Um, some stuff happens. There's a meteor shower. Uh, the Cygnus, which has this, anti-gravity bubble that keeps them from getting sucked into the black hole um starts to break apart uh they end up getting sucked into the black hole and then end up in the afterlife i guess i don't know 
like where I, I guess you're supposed to assume that it's like in passing through the black hole, they've gone to like some better place or worse place in certain cases. Yeah. I think um, that's probably my least favorite part of like the whole thing is like how it had to turn into this kind of almost like religious right, allegory at the end. It's definitely more difficult to stomach as like an adult than it was right. as like a six year old. Sure. Um, I mean, I saw this movie. Shit. I must have been like four maybe when I saw this movie for the first time. And it was on TV a few times in the early 80s on like, I guess Disney had maybe like a Saturday afternoon block or something where they would show a movie. Um, Because there's a bunch of like weird Disney movies that I remember seeing from that time that I've tried to find. And right. Like it's really difficult to find them. I mean, they were released on DVD like once and it's like almost impossible to find them anywhere. But they would show the black hole sometimes, and I I used to. This is one of my favorite movies as a kid. Like I love the black hole. Mm-hmm. Um, watching it again, I think it stands up better as like, like a psychological horror movie more than a sci-fi movie. Um, I think it's one of the most like beautiful representations of technology and space with like just the most abjectly nineteen seventies like aesthetic to it. Um, with the colored lights and the way, like, I, I love the way the Cygnus looks from the outside, like all lit up, um, almost like a giant floating greenhouse in space kind of. Mm-hmm. And like the control panels, it's very, very much like, like being in like a Chuck E. Cheese in like 1981 or something is what it looks like. Um, I, I really like, even though they're kind of silly, like I like the designs of the robots a lot, like Vincent and old Bob, um, and Maximilian, especially like one of my favorite like non-speaking antagonists in like movies from a kid um i actually when i was a little kid i was like terrified of maximilian really yeah like there was something about just the i don't know like like indomitable like inevitable nature of him just being like this like he would like just flip his blades up and he could like cut you apart and you know just singularly minded to like kill things basically and like big and imposing and almost kind of like like i felt the same way about the emperor's royal guards kind of like when i would play with my toys like i would have the same like they were always like the biggest badasses even though like you see them for two seconds in return of the jedi but and they get their ass kicked yeah no they don't do anything they just walk away do they yeah they're standing outside of the emperor's chamber and then like when luke and vader come up they like kind of walk around to the oh, right. other sides and like they never do anything huh. um Weird. so maybe it's like the red or something like that yeah but um well and being faceless yeah those like little visors kind of things yeah yeah because stormtroopers have like like a humanity to them because they have like right. a face kind of but like them being yeah just yeah, this was like faceless, like go, like and robed, and yeah, yeah it, was, it was menacing. Yeah. Um, there was actually a line of uh, black hole toys from Mego from like the late seventies, early eighties mm-hmm. that were done in GI Joe style. So they had like the, um, the like jointed like elbows and jointed knees, and mm-hmm. um, I had a bunch of them because I had like every toy when I was a little kid. Um, but they were always like. Maximilian was always like the big bad guy when I would play G.I. Joe and stuff. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, as a movie, like as an adult, it's not 
it probably doesn't deserve to be on this list. This is like the one like real nostalgia pick. Yeah. Out of everything on it. And like you That's... can definitely see flaws, but um oddly like the worst performance is probably Robert Forrester. Like it's very stilted. Oddly wooden. Yeah. yeah, and like he almost like you feel like he doesn't understand the dialogue that he's delivering yeah. like half the time. But I, mean, I, think, I think I would argue that Ernest Borgnine is also pretty bad, except for he sh- has charm, so he gets right. away with well, it. Well, he's just Ernest Borgnine. Sure, I mean, right. Yeah. You just have to, uh, whatever. It's just, that's who he is. Right. Um, I think Perkins is really good in it. I think uh, Maximilian Shell is really good in it. Yeah, Shell's really um, good in it. Again, like, I think that there's a lot of personality in those robots that... Agreed. Maybe more so than like any of the human actors in the movie. Absolutely. Um, like you feel bad for old Bob when old Bob like dies, like gets blown up by Max Maximilian at the end. Yeah. Um, and Maximilian has like this just menace, the way that like he floats and is just there, and it's like that silent like hovering and like the glowing eye and stuff. Um, yeah, the end of the movie is just the religious allegory is weird. And, like, nonsensical. And I know that, like, a lot of criticism comes towards, like, the depiction of how a black hole works. But then, like, you know, whatever. I mean, it's... It's Disney's most violent movie up to this point. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of, like... For... Especially when you think of Disney movies being marketed towards little kids, there's a lot of really scary stuff in it. Like, when they... When they pull the mask off of the first um, android... And it's like the withered zombie face underneath when you re- when you find out like that's what happened like mm-hmm. that's yeah like pretty horrific for a child yeah. a child's movie in the late seventies sure. although like they didn't care give a shit about like what children saw in that respect because you think about like something wicked and sure. Watcher in the woods and yeah. I don't know like was all Peanut Butter Solution movies. Disney? Whew. So I thought there was some creepy stuff when I was a kid that might Peanut be I, I don't remember yeah I can't remember either I mean Disney made like everything. Right. At one point. <laughs> they still do. Right. It's yeah. just, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, But again, like aesthetically, like I think it's amazing. Like I love the way this movie looks. And the best part of the movie is the score by John Barry mm-hmm. is like the, um, the Cygnus score that like rolling, I can't even describe it. Like the, like, yeah. like score that mm-hmm. happens like when they're. It feels like next to maybe the John Williams like Star Wars score with like the Imperial March and whatnot. I think that the Black Hole score is maybe my favorite like sci-fi score of all time. I think it really feels like expansive and menacing. And is this the one that I text you about? Yeah, this is the one that you said you felt yeah. like. Um, I'm, I'm almost positive that I'm right that the score is kind of exaggerated. And mocked a little in the Austin Powers layer scenes. Uh, I'm almost. I've I've done some research into it, like, and by research because it's such a dumb thing to research. Like, I'm talking like 15 minutes, but like enough to where it's like I don't think anybody's mentioned this or like nobody's like ever compared them. But I'm positive that they took this score and and it, it happens a number of times in the movies, but it's the very first. Uh, score in the intro like of the movie yeah that they that's the one i'm talking about i'm positive they take it and exaggerate it and that's what they use for Austin. i mean it's it's elements of you're talking about the score that's over the main credits yes because there's a um what do you call it when you have like an orchestral 
interlude before a movie starts like whatever that prelude mm-hmm. music is is different mm-hmm. like that's just more right. like uplifting yeah this is when like you actually it's after the title card right and that's the beginning of the first yeah i i i love that music and like as soon as i heard it watching it again and this is there's not many lists where i feel like i have to watch every movie again Uh just to like refresh myself but this is one of the ones where i've now seen like all five of these movies in the past week and a half Mm -hmm. like i was just like immediately sucked into the movie by that score like i love that music yeah and again, like, I love the colors in it. I love, like, I like that nonsensical, <clears throat> there's no real way that, like, any of this stuff would exist in, like, an actual spaceship, mm-hmm. like, technology that just looks really cool. And, you know, the robe figures are really menacing. His, like, fighter bots are menacing. I don't know. It's just, it's it's a really good, mm-hmm. like, space horror movie. So, uh- I do have one thing here on the criticism that's related to the idea of, I think it relates to the idea of like, even like a criticism of age in some way, like a, like a, a child, like children. Cause as adults, like, look, this is the first time I've ever seen this movie. I've never seen it before. I think I saw bits and pieces as a kid somewhere, but um, this is the first time I've actually sat down and watched it. If I was, six seven eight like yeah i would have liked this movie first time watching it as an adult it's like it's there's elements of it that i sure that are fine and but overall it's like i would have liked it then now seeing it for the first time i'm not going to have that same sense of nostalgia and it's like i'm just being critical of it like as i'm watching it really and I, i don't think that's the point overall like i think it's made for kids yeah and so it's a little unfair for me to criticize it too much but um ebert who he gave it two stars out of four but he says that the basic problem with the movie is that it doesn't really confront the challenge of being a fiction about a black hole the black hole is there all right and the characters gaze into it and make solemn statements and maximilian shell seems properly obsessed with it but we don't feel a sense of wonder there's no awe the whole is a gimmick that the movie can cut away to in between onboard plotting and scheming and the movie's end there's a sensational visual payoff but somehow it comes too late the events leading up to it have been so trivial and cliche written the movie doesn't earn its climax and what do you know black holes retain their reputation nothing can escape from them not even this movie um sometimes I, ebert hits with those pithy things you know what though like i i think for being a grown man watching this movie probably yeah. an appropriate response yeah like what did i know about black holes in like 1980 or whatever 1981 when i saw this movie i mean to me i thought the stuff with like you know well i think they didn't even know a lot themselves back then i think it was pretty fresh really yeah um in the 70s i think what's the scientist's name in the movie the evil scientist i can't remember it but him and maximilian being like fused together in hell at the end was like Mm -hmm. really scary to me and then Even, like, seeing the angels fly past was, like, kind of scary because they're, like, ghost-like. Right. Like, you watch it now and you, like, kind of roll your eyes at it. Mm -hmm. It's it's a silly, like, completely out-of-place allegorical end to a movie that's not, like, allegorical up to that point. Right. But, um, like, as a kid, it was, you know. Yeah. Terrifying. you're you're saying as as a kid you did have a sense of all then? Right. So... If you watch Neverending Story for the first time today as an adult, having never seen it, you wouldn't enjoy that movie nearly was, as much. I was an asshole kid who didn't enjoy it even when I was a kid. But I mean, like, all of us, like, I loved that movie as a kid. Like, I watched Neverending Story probably a dozen times yeah. in the span of, like, a year. And I watched Neverending Story, like, three or four years ago. 
And there's a lot of stuff that makes you roll your eyes in Neverending Story. Like, it's... There's the nostalgia part where you still kind of, like, enjoy it. And there's a lot of parts that I think are really cool, like a lot of ideas. Right. But, like, all of these movies, there's very little... There's very little that has, like, the lasting impact of something like Star Wars, where you can watch it today and still be wrapped up in the story and still mm-hmm. think the special effects are really well done. Right. I I mean, I, I one of the things, and you asked me this a few minutes ago, I love the miniature work in these 70s sci-fi movies. Like, I really like the way they film the Cygnus, and it's not, like, a CGI thing. I mean, it's one of the things, in my opinion, you know, you look at something that kind of is a parallel to this movie, is um, Event Horizon from, like, the late 90s. Okay. Just in the similar tone of, like, the ghost ship that's found and it's, you know, this mad scientist, whatever, that did this thing. Um, And even the parallels to, like, opening a portal to hell and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's all CGI. Like, it's all computer generated. And it's not... It loses a sense of... I don't know, like, um, like, immediacy or realness. And I think... Like, starting with something like 2001, which, despite my problems with that movie, like, probably the preeminent people in space in terms of, like, the design of the ships and the way that everything looks. And, like, I love that, like, practical, you know, map-based, like, filmmaking where you have, like, an actual physical thing that exists that they're filming and making you feel like is this giant vessel in reality it's like a three foot long model i don't know i just i think that's really cool yeah yeah i'm always a sucker for like that kind of sci-fi right but i don't i mean i don't know what else to say about it so okay so let's move on to uh, number four i think there's probably a little bit more going on there so number four on the list is silent running from 1972 it's directed by douglas trumbull Stars Bruce Dern, Cliff Potts, young Ron Rifkin. It's a 67% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 66% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? <clears throat> so there's a space freighter sometime in like the... I don't think they ever define like how far in the future. Um, manned by these four guys, one of whom is Bruce Dern, who's a biologist slash scientist. Um there's it's revealed there were several of these freighters that were sent out into space that were equipped with biodomes um the plant life on earth has been destroyed by um man's like neglect of the environment or whatever and the they're going through space to try and grow these plants so that they can eventually repopulate the earth with plant life it's kind of a ridiculous premise because why couldn't you just do that? Oh no, I'm over here laughing because it's like <laughs> you couldn't identify the year that's going to happen, and it's like I think we our right. scientists have figured out it's probably um, two thousand seventy. Right, right. We'll all be dead. <laughs> um. So, Bruce Dern is standoffish. Um, his only real concern, like he has no real concern for his human, um. Like, shipmates, his only real concern is for the plant life and animal life that are in these biodomes. Uh, Early in the movie, it's discovered that the company that owns the freighters is ordering them to jettison and destroy the biodomes and then return the freighters to commercial service. So, Bruce Stern freaks out and murders everyone. Um, 
and then basically lives this lie where he tells the um, the recovery vessels that are coming for him that like everyone was killed and it was an explosion and just kind of lives with these three robots that he nicknames Huey, Dewey, and Louie um, to help him tend to the biodome. Um, eventually, he has to blow up the entire thing and jettison the last like functional biodome and then it goes off into space to be tended by the robot and the final thing you see is it floating in space and like the plant life thriving because it's like within the rays of the sun and it's able to whatever um so really like a criticism of you know i guess this is where like this point in the 70s what is this 72 72 um like the burgeoning era of uh like the environmental movement and Mm -hmm. You know, we need to clean up the planet and we can't pollute the planet as much as we have been. Um, It's fascinating because, so I, this is another movie I saw when I was really young. Like I was probably seven or eight when my dad rented this movie and we watched it together. And it scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. Like there's, I don't know what it is. Like him having, so there's one point where um, he hurts his leg uh, in a struggle with, the one guy that he murders, like outright murders with his, his hands. Right. Um, and so he has to get surgery to get it fixed. And there was something about that that was really upsetting to me, like the mm-hmm. blood on his leg and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the idea of him being stranded in space like that was really upsetting to me. Like that actually is one of my biggest fears. Um, I mean, I thought gravity was like just an okay movie, but mm-hmm. the idea of like having nothing around you and like yeah. just being like in the emptiness of like space is, like, pretty terrifying, I think. Yeah. And I think as a kid, like, it was especially terrifying to me. Um, it's weird because I remember being really sympathetic to Bruce Stern's character when I was younger, like, mm. thinking he was the hero. <laughs> and watching it this past week, realizing that, like, Bruce Stern is 100% the villain of this movie. <clears throat> that, like, the guys that were on the ship with him were just, like, dudes who were doing their jobs. Like, they may have been kind of assholes, but... Mm they're not like particularly terrible people or anything. They just, they want to go home. Like they've been flying around in space for years is like, I guess what's implied. And they, you know, they're tired. They want to go Mm -hmm. back to earth and they don't mind like eating synthetic food and they don't mind like, because it's, it's implied that earth is basically a utopia at this point, that there's no war or like animosity between people that people have just kind of become homogenized there and everyone's the same. And that's, I mean, Bruce Dern is like a fucking G he's, he's a Christ figure in the movie. Like to the point where there's several times where he's wearing like these flowing, like burlap robes and tending to the gardens barefoot. And if not Christ, he's like some kind of like earth mother esque, like shepherd type figure, but just like a crazy asshole. Yeah. The movie definitely sympathizes with him. The movie does, but I don't know that you can as like a viewer, I don't know. I mean, it seems like there were plenty of people at the time that did, which I find really interesting. The other thing that kind of makes him like a real villain is towards the end of the movie, he's riding around on like the moon buggies that they were using to get around the ship and like having a good time. And that's when he destroys, he breaks the one robot because he's, he's drunk, I guess. Right. And he's like driving around on him and just having a good time. Which is the thing he hated about the three people that he murdered early is they were like riding around on these doom buggies and just enjoying themselves. And right. he was so disdainful of, you know, 
because they're running over his plants and trying to hit him with a rake and whatever. And I don't know. Like, he's just, he, he's a complete asshole. And then I guess there's some nobility to him sacrificing himself to save, like, the trees and whatever. But I don't know. Um, so what do you like about this? <laughs> no, I think it's, look, I, I think that it's compelling Okay. That you have somebody that's so morally ambiguous as your protagonist. Right. Like, that you can watch this movie and view it from that he is doing the righteous thing. And he is somebody that, like, having, like, that high level of, like, moral immobility. You know, where, like, you're dedicated to an ideal at the expense of everyone else. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean... You know, I guess that lack of compromise, like uncompromising idealism can be like attractive. Right. But then I think you can also look at it where it's the opposite, where he's caused the death of multiple people, including himself, and basically like destroyed this this vessel for what? You know, for this mm-hmm. like to allow plant life to exist like floating around where are they like Saturn or something like that? Yeah. yeah right. Because they're going into the rings of Saturn. Right. And that's what's going to destroy them. Yep. Um, so to what end, you know, like it's never going to get back to earth. You haven't done anything to save the planet. All you've done is save this really tiny bit of like a a memory of what, like whatever nature was like that no one else will ever get to experience or benefit from. So yeah, my first time viewing it, I found it fairly captivating to watch because of that reason is like once he murders that guy. I, I, I didn't expect that. Right. And I was like, what the hell is this movie about? And it really confused me after I finished watching it because again, the movie was portraying him as a hero and my whole view the whole time was like, this guy is, um, an asshole and a murderer. But like, I, like, I love moral ambiguity. Oh yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. So I saw this movie a couple times as a kid. So probably the first time again when I was seven or eight, maybe the second time a couple years after that. And I have not seen this movie since. Right. But it made a really big impression on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so watching it last week was the first time I've seen it in probably 30 plus years. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that I remembered his crewmates living longer. And I remembered his crewmates being much more antagonistic towards them. Hmm. Like in my memory, him killing them was justified in a lot of ways. And I don't know why as a kid, like I saw it that way. And then now it's just like, man, that comes out of note. Because it's almost like... Maybe as a child, you're more sensitive to the idea of um, like him getting picked on. Maybe the bullying aspect that happens on a couple of But I mean, at that point in my life, probably not so much. Um... I mean, I didn't really experience, like, bullying until late elementary school and middle school, really. And, like, so it wouldn't have been... I don't think it would have, like, resonated that much with me from that perspective. But, um, it's just weird because he he kills the one, like, truly sympathetic crewmate. Um, and basically, like, he really kills him on accident. Like, he only kills him because he's trying to save his biodome. Right. And it's a completely irrational reaction. Mm-hmm. And then once he, you know, once he's murdered him, like, he has to murder the other two by destroying one of the biodomes just as, like, 
you know, like to protect himself, basically. So sure. it's not like he's doing it at that point out of like, I don't know, like some kind of like moral high ground. He's doing it because he's afraid of what he's done and he's got to protect himself. Right. And he's scrambling to find a way to still save, you know, the plants and the animals and shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of saw it. This is just fresh in my mind just because it came up in conversation before the podcast. But the way I ended up viewing it as I was watching it was kind of almost like a, like what happens with the assassination of Gianni Versace, like where like after he kills Versace, like kind of like the hot him going into hiding and stuff like uh-huh. that. I felt a very similar feeling watching this where it's like this guy's done these pretty terrible things in terms of murdering these people and then, you know, these machinations to get away from his corporate overlords and all those kind of things. Right. And then... Who are also portrayed just as decent people. Right. They're really concerned about him. And... But it's like, this is like this guy almost like living out like a series of days knowing he has to pay the piper at some point. Oh, convincing himself he may never have to pay the piper. Right, but... While still knowing that it's going to come. Right. Right. And then, and then much similarly, he takes... I mean, this is a moralistic judgment, but takes the coward's way out and, right, you know, kills himself. Um, and, like, and it's a really depressing movie for, if, viewing it from that point. But um, I, I, I did think it was very interesting. I, I had never seen it before and thought it was a, a pretty fascinating watch for an hour and a half. One of the coolest things about it that I didn't know until watching it this time and looking it up was um, those were multiple amputees playing the robots. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. That, um... Like, I, I I guess I never gave him much thought. Like, right. I never really thought of, like, R2-D2 either as being, like, you know, an actor mm-hmm. in a costume. Sure. But, like, it's interesting that those are actual people inside those costumes. Yeah. And I think that's why, like, there's, there's a really definite humanity to the three robots mm-hmm. in the movie. And you, def- you feel bad yes. when they die. Yeah, I was more affected by the robots in this than I was. And it's in, funny because uh, he's, Black Hole. he's such an asshole. When um the first robot gets knocked, like it's like destroyed, like outside repairing the ship, mm-hmm. like this is what I'm telling you, you got to be careful. Like look, look what right. happens, and it's just like, dude, yeah. like you made the robot go out there. It's not the robot's fault, right? Um, this also has what I like about the '70s science fiction, which is like what people thought when they were looking at like this far reaching like technology, like this is what technology is going to be like. And it's just so like silly in some ways, like when he's pulling the little circuit boards out of the robots. And it's also really funny that there's so much like corporate advertising there that, you know what, I guess the sponsorship of these vessels was Coca-Cola and whatever the other advertisers Mm -hmm. are, but there's like a prominent, you know, Coca-Cola sign, like, in the main, like, storage bay, and... Sure. There's some other things that are, like, big, um, corporations from the 70s that are in, like, in the movie. But Bruce Dern is fantastic in it, like, he's... It's a really good performance, and definitely plays that moral ambiguity up, like, really well. I mean, I, I like Bruce Dern a lot, and we've just seen Bruce Dern recently. Um, I think he's a pretty under underrated actor. Maybe not. Maybe he's appropriately rated. Um, but I really yeah. enjoy him in this movie. I think he's appropriately rated. Um, I, th- I thought he was good in this. I, I, I think Bruce Dern is limited. 
in his range at times, and I don't think that shine through that much in this, but just in other roles, I think that there's limitations to like what he's capable of doing. Sure. And um, so yeah, I think I think he's appropriately rated most of the time. Like I, well, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know what people think. Never mind. Um, but I I I think of like people that really follow film. Yeah. I think he's appropriately rated. I think to that a casual audience, you know, like the masses, like probably underrated. It's like, interesting because Bruce Stern would have been like a counterculture hero at this point when he makes this movie. Oh, sure. sure. So that might be one of the reasons why people are much more yeah. inclined to view it from like a positive perspective. Yeah, well, Ebert gives it four stars and he says at one point in the review, and I found this interesting, is that Silent Running isn't in the last analysis a very profound movie, nor does it try to be. If it had been, it would have been a pretentious disaster. Which I agree with. It was about a basically uncomplicated man faced with an awesome but uncomplicated situation. Given a choice between the lives of his companions and the lives of Earth's last surviving firs and pines, oaks and elms, and creepers and cantaloupes, he decides for the growing things. After all, there are plenty of men. His problem is that after a while, he begins to miss them. And I think the last part I agree with is that, like, some of those scenes, like you said, like, him driving around the buggy drunk, mm-hmm. is, that is, like, him kind of sure, him missing that to... after the fact. But I think it's really just interesting how he minimizes that choice. Is like, oh, well, there's plenty of men and these things, these, these growing things, as he calls them. It's like to minimize the choice of murder by right. his own hand. Like, you know, it's one thing to be removed from it like the other two. But like murder with his own with his own hands, that's a hell of a that's a hell of a way to write that right. for Ebert. So that's what I'm saying is like I see a lot of this kind of stuff like when I'm reading it where it's like there seems to be this implicit sympathy with the character during the time period. Sure, and again, I think it's the burgeoning environmentalist movement. Yeah. I mean, it's the the Native American crying on the side of the road yeah. next to the trash. You know what I mean? I mean that's like. But in hindsight now, I find it terrifying that there's an implicit sympathy with this character Consider like, like it's justified to some degree in, for the calls. And, and if people, if that, if there was any kind of sympathy today, which there shouldn't be for violent acts associated with causes. It would be it, it would be just as horrifying. It is just as horrifying because people are justifying some of these th- some of these violent acts. Right, but we watch. There's plenty of movies that come out now that the premise is some of the most popular movies of the past five years, like in the John Wick movies. Yeah, I'm where seeing those yet. it's a man murdering innumerable amounts of people, right? Because somebody killed his dog. I mean, that's like and wrecked right. his car. You know, sure. And, you're rooting for that character, and there's nobody that's right. like, oh, what are the moral ramifications of John Wick, like, murdering all these people? It's like, no, fucking kill him, John Wick. And those movies are really good. Like, I love those movies. But yeah, but are those movies trying to make a point about, like, like, like this movie is, no. I think. Like, uh, but this is, I mean, this... So, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in the Tarantino podcast, just in, like, the like the sea change in attitude after the, the Manson murder right yeah and people were learning more about like you don't have like that rose-colored lens of like the 50s anymore where everything's great and america's great and like people are starting to realize that things like aren't as great as they think and you have the looming gas crisis in the 70s and there's 
you know, you're coming out of Vietnam at this point, and there's just a lot of things I think that are like would maybe darken your opinion of humanity and especially from Ebert's point of view, cause he really is like a humanist in a lot of ways Sure, that maybe he can understand, you know, like the greater good is worth a couple of, you know, sacrifices mm. in that respect. So, I mean, I, you're right. It's, it's kind of horrifying, but I can kind of understand it. And I think that if, when you watch like a lot of the greatest movies from the seventies, they have the same, you know, the same sort of, like, dark mindset of, yeah. you know, the sacrifice for the greater good is worth the sacrifice. And that sometimes, like, the individual does outweigh the masses, you know? Mm. Even something like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know what I mean? Like, right. another seminal movie from the 70s that, you know, it's about, like, him just trying to survive in a terrible situation. And obviously yeah. it's not the same with, like, murder and whatnot, but, you know, right. similar, like, like ideologically, like it's kind of similar. So, yeah. Ebert's a hippie too. Anyway, oh yeah, a hippie yeah. and like a giant, giant pacifist when it comes down to it. Sure, it's interesting going back and looking at Ebert. Honestly, um, oh damn it, I forgot to do my day per game. Um, but it, it is really interesting reading how progressive Ebert was years before, uh, on some issues, years before other people were right. as progressive as on him. As, he's, you know. he's very much a feminist. He's sure. very much a humanist. Yeah. He's very much into the ideological examination of, like, the thought behind the action of man, I guess, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Sure. Like, he loves things that are like about why people do what they do yeah except for he's not it's not at other time like it's a very weird dichotomy there right. for there, him there's because a fine like because he does not have that feeling about horror movies like well and again though i think that that's because it was taboo to appreciate a horror movie right um in you know the 1970s right. like which but for somebody being as progressive as he is it's weird to have that idea that he's a conformist in some respects and that he's Ahead, but he's not a fan and... he's not he's a fan of thought and idea he's not a fan of transgression and i think that like mm. horror cinema was viewed as transgressive and gratuitous mm. and all of these guys that are these college educated high-minded film critics like do not appreciate mm. the gratuity and the transgression of like the horror genre so going backwards real quick did dave kerr like black hole uh, no. Correct. Dave Kerr thought it was, uh, let me think like, let me think like Dave Kerr. Dave <laughs> Kerr found it to be a trifle with like little substance that in the end is meaningless with some tacked on religious iconography and ultimately like unsatisfying or something along those lines. It has a lively sense of menace and in some of its fruitier moments, it reminded me of the more traumatic passages in The Brothers Grimm. Gary Nelson's direction is very bad. The writing is weak and the acting can't be at best. But Peter Ellen Shaw's production design strikes the right balance of vastness and seductive detail. His spaceship owes more to Christopher Wren than Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's right. Um, so silent running here. <clears throat> Do you like this movie? He liked it, but he had problems with it. Overall, he actually just kind of liked it. 
He liked Dern's performance. He liked yes. the production design. He liked the overall story. Yeah. He thought it was a little plotting at points. I think that's exactly almost correct. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking, yeah. Yeah. You're getting into the mind. Fucking the mind See, of Dave Kerr. Yeah. You're like, you're like the Dave Kerr, like mind hunter here. Right. <clears throat> getting into his brain. You're profiling this fucking <laughs> asshole with his <laughs> long muscle. I, I told you like my picture of Dave Kerr. Right? You have. It's not accurate whatsoever, I but I still, what, what's your image of him? Like this long mustache and he's wearing like a smoking jacket and he's got like, a tumbler of scotch and he's like fuff, fuff, yeah. and like sipping his scotch and like pontificating about like movies right yeah and uh, yeah you don't want to know what david kind of fat like. kind of balding yeah. he's got like the wing like things coming off the side of his head yeah okay i, I guess i kind of combine gene siskel <laughs> with oh what's the other one's name rex um, reed no the the one that was on the today show with the curly hair uh gene um gene, is that gene shallot yeah gene shallot yeah i combine those two right and then i throw them onto like ernest hemingway and squeeze orson wells in there and like basically that's dave kerr gotcha right you can easily find what dave kerr looks like don't nowadays want to on youtube i know you don't but you can, you can easily just like google dave kerr and and you, see what he actually looks like nowadays right any of you can i will not he's a nice old guy you can see where he's got that pithiness to him still but um, okay, so number three on your list is movie Time After Time, 1979 as well, directed by Nicholas Meyer, starring Malcolm McDowell, David Warner, Mary Steenburgen. has an 86% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 72% from audiences. You want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and what you liked about it so much? So in the 1800s, H.G. Uh, Wells is hosting a dinner party um, during the height of the Ripper murders. Um, shows his guests, among whom include uh, David Warner, who's playing Dr. Stevenson, this time machine that he's made. Um, everyone kind of mocks him, saying that it doesn't, like, there's no way that it'll work and whatever. Um, the police come and they've identified Stevenson as the Ripper. Um, when Wells goes downstairs, his time machine is gone. So obviously, Stevenson, the Ripper, has, like, gone somewhere in time to escape. Uh, Wells there's this plot device with this key that the only way the time machine will return the time machine will return back to the place that it came from unless this key is left in it and wells has the key on him so he's able to track the ripper to uh 1979 san francisco um once there wells eventually meets uh the mary steenberger steenbergen steenbergen i can never remember that woman's name yeah who's a um foreign desk agent at a bank who exchanges currency um they fall in love uh while they're tracking the ripper david warner turns into like john travolta basically and is still murdering people as like the ripper in modern san francisco um eventually wells is able to convince steenbergen that he's a time traveler um she finds out that she's gonna die there's this tense, you know, chase where Wells is trying to catch uh, the Ripper and he's kidnapped Steenberger's character. Um, and eventually, like, Wells sends him tumbling into the abyss of time without the benefit of being in the time machine. And they go back in time to the past and get married. And Wells writes all of his, like, books. Right. That's pretty much it. 
Um, this is absolutely the most poorly directed movie on this list. Mm-hmm. Um, it is incredibly clunky. Like you can tell, uh, this is a first time director with no real idea of how to film scenes. Right. Um, so if it wasn't for the performances of Warner and, um, McDowell particularly, but, but Steenbergen too, like adds an element of like, kind of like the plucky nine to five esque, like, right. You know, I'm a liberated woman and honestly, like pretty well written for a female character, I think for the time. Yeah. Overall. Um, doesn't take much shit. Like, even though she's in love with them, she's still willing to like cut them off. Yeah. Because he implies that, like, his work is more important than her work. Um, Warner and McDowell are fucking amazing. And Warner, Matt- Warner's, I'm not a, I don't know Warner from a lot. Like, yeah. Honestly, it's Twin Peaks is the character he plays in that in the first, or in the second season. Um, which I can't even remember the character's name now, but he shows up in the second season, uh, presumed dead. It was Josie's original husband um, that she escapes from. Right. But... Uh, I love David Warner in this. I think he's fantastic. He's really good. Yeah, he's one of the um, one of the better character actors of like the seventies and eighties. Um, definitely has just the right amount of like mod, and, and you know it. Will, so the script is fantastic in this movie, and right. the idea of the movie is really sure. really good. Also written, I think, by Nicholas. Myers. It is. Yeah, I mean, he's directing his own words, sure. so I mean that always helps. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a scene, um, about 40 minutes, 35 minutes into the movie where Wells has tracked Stevenson to the Hyatt Regency. Um, and it surprised him because Stevenson never expected to be found. Right. And they have a conversation where Stevenson sits on the bed with him and makes him watch television. It's really good. And talks about how he's the man for this age that he was he's basically like a toddler compared to the terrible things that men do to each other now. And like, mm-hmm. this is the age for the, for him, right. you know, Wells is out of place, but like yeah. he fits in perfectly. And it's amazing. Cause Wells never changes his clothes. Like he's wearing, mm-hmm. you know, this tweed three piece suit with like the antiquated like buttons and stuff. Mm-hmm. And Steenberger, when they have sex for the first time, like makes a joke, like, what is this? Like a costume is, it's the rest of your the rest of it more just as complicated to get off. But there's so many like little bits of dialogue, especially Wells, and I, I think that I haven't read a whole lot of H. G. Wells. Like I've read The Time Machine and I've read um Oh man, maybe the Invasion from Mars stuff. Um anyway. He was like a brilliant futurist. Like he predicted like, a lot of stuff that's happened. But also like a big humanist and a big feminist in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I guess that he's pulling directly from things that Wells wrote. But like the dialogue in it that Wells delivers. There's a scene like towards the latter third of the movie where Wells says something like the first man to raise a fist is the first man to admit defeat. Mm-hmm. And it's just like this amazing like little monologue that he gives in Steinberger's like I love you. Right. And it's really funny, like when it's done, but it's really, really good. And uh-huh. the interactions between Warner and McDowell are fantastic. Um, Ma- Malcolm McDowell, like I will, I will always say that the '70s belong to Jack Nicholson. 
in a lot of ways. Like, he's, in my opinion, the preeminent actor of the 1970s. <clears throat> Just in terms of, like, the quality of performance versus the quantity of output. But I think Malcolm McDowell is, like, 1A or 1B in that respect. <clears throat> um, just a guy that can play almost any role and be convincing in those roles. Yeah. And he's got this boyish like charm and gusto in all of his performances yeah it helps that he was like a young man like during this time but sure you know you have lucky man you have um if you have this you have the next movie on the list actually um right just i don't know like mcdowell is such a, a powerful actor and really really good in this role and you like you just root for him the whole time like you want him to succeed yeah. and you want him to win and the fact that, like, he never stoops to, like, the one time that he's going to stoop to violence when he goes and buys a gun mm. to protect the woman that he loves, he gets picked up by the cops right. and, like, immediately arrested. So it's like, like, when he sticks to his, like, his own moral imperatives, you know, he's mm. able to be successful, you know, even though he is an idealist and a dreamer and, right. like, a man of letters at heart and not, like, a man of action necessarily, but still able to, you know. The one thing I found interesting... I haven't watched, I haven't seen this movie today. I watched this movie today. So I haven't seen this movie before today. And probably like, I own it on DVD. So I would say maybe like 13 or 14 years mm -hmm. since I've seen this movie. I never really noticed before that I think David Warner is almost imploring him to end his life at the end. Yes. When he's inside the time machine. Agreed. And yeah, Wells, yeah. there's the MacGuffin of like the. I can't remember what they call it, but it's like this part of the time machine where if you pull it out, the person travels in time separate from the machine. Right. And he can never come back because there's no like fixed point for him to return to. Mm -hmm. Another piece of like really brilliant, like just like introducing some, it's like the, what's, what's it called? Like when the principal, when like you introduce a gun in a play, like the gun has to go off or whatever. Check off. Right. Yeah. So it's the same principle here introduced like way early in the movie and then like plays out like perfectly yeah. at the yeah. end when he pulls it out but it's almost like warner is appreciative of wells like finally having the guts to do something sure and take that action and not let him go on and keep killing because he can't stop himself yeah from killing um and warner as the ripper is so menacing like yes when he's when he's in the hotel room with the woman who's offering him weed um grass i guess is what mm -hmm. she calls it and he walks over with his fucking denim vest and turtleneck and just pulls out like this ridiculous like hook blade and like kills her um such like a look of like there's no pleasure to it it's just inevitable basically like mm -hmm. he's just gives this like almost like thousand yard stare with like a drop of blood like running down his nose and yeah. it's so well done. Such a great performance. And I love that, like, th this is science fiction I love, where there's, like, no basis in any reality of, like, like nothing sure. has any correlation, any real science. It's ridiculous, like, 1890s, like, science, mm -hmm. like, not science fiction, but science, like, predict predictive science or whatever, right. which Wells was a master of. And, like, when I was a kid, I had a book that was, um... The predictions of H.E. Wells or something like that. And it was like an illustrated thing that showed like um, woodcuts and like 
um, lithographs from the time of like things that Wells described and the correlation to like the modern age. And Wells, like you almost believe that. I mean, you don't believe it, but like the joke that Wells like may have traveled in time and like seen those things. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that with um, what's his name? Uh, fuck the poet that you love, uh, Oz, or Tennyson. You, yeah, Tennyson. Um, oh, Argosy's a magic sails and right. yeah, right. Like basically, like, the future far predicting and like I can planes see. and right. World War Two and whatever, and like his poetry. And it's the yeah. same thing with Wells. Like you read yeah. things like elevators and um, battleships and helicopters and like all these things, well before the Wright brothers or anybody had any notion sure. of like really like how to fly in the air. Like Wells kind of predicted it. Right. And they invest that, like, McDowell does a great job, like, investing that futurism and imagination in the character that he, like, you know, they're sitting on, like, the rotating restaurant, like, having lunch together, and she's definitely just trying to fuck him. Like, she just wants, she's, like, fascinated with this guy, and he can't stop, like, looking out the window at these buildings and everything. Right. Oh, right, that's the dyke scene. Yeah, so... That, that that and this is a petty thing, but it's like, man, did it, I did not expect it to have the had the reaction to it that I did, but like, man, was I taken out of that movie for five minutes, like, like because it was like so natural to use that term to describe a lesbian coming from a female's mouth, and it's like, so I was I, I used to hear that growing up, right. like all the time, but it's like it's been so long since I've heard it in a non-ironic way. I think that so I was I was prepared for it because you would watch yeah. this movie before me and talk right. about it. Uh-huh. Here's here's my take on that scene specifically. They live in San Francisco, or she lives in San Francisco, yeah. which at the time in the late seventies was like the burgeoning sure, sure. gay capital sure. of the United States. Yeah. She implies a couple of times that she hopes that he's not gay. Right. Because she thinks that because he's so well-dressed and so well-mannered that he might sure. be. I get that, yeah. And I think she's... Because she does, she says she doesn't sleep with anybody, ever, unless she's attracted to him. Right. And then, like, later implies that she's never attracted to anybody. And it's been a long time since she's, like, slept with anyone. Mm-hmm. I think she's so afraid of losing the connection to this guy or that this guy's gay mm-hmm. that she's just saying whatever she can to, like, basically throw herself... You know, like, I'm not a dyke, you know. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a fine explanation. I don't even need it to be defended or anything like that. I was just I was just shocked by hearing that suddenly after so long in such a very casual way that, like, it, it, I was surprised by how kind of gross I felt so hearing it. Like, do you remember, though, that, like, dyke was one of those words that was taken back by the gay community to sure. describe uh, right where like that was almost like an empowering word that yeah. lesbians would use to describe right. themselves uh-huh. right that's kind of I, I don't know if that's still the case yeah but i don't i don't see that that often i mean this could be but i just i just know growing up hearing it from like i mean usually it was like males who like you know couldn't get the date so right. it was like you know it was used in this kind of just an asshole who couldn't sweet talk the princess <laughs> yes right yeah. um right and it's god i'm so glad we have the word incel um now like, but but it's like these kind of like incelish right. types like you know where they can't like you know get with the girl so oh she's obviously has she to must be, be a, a must be a dyke right. Yeah. Right. it's 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 uncomfortable but i yeah. don't i don't know that it's necessarily out of place in the context of the scene. no i don't think it probably is at all um and again like 
I I like her character a lot. Yeah. Um, just because she feels. We we talked about this last week when we were talking about the manic princess, manic manic pixie dream girl or whatever. Right, yeah. She is not that at all. Like she feels like a real person. Sure. With flaws and yeah. who's not like always charming and who's not always all together. Yeah. Like she's very very lonely it feels like and very quirky and not yeah. very good at talking especially to men and i think it's really just her bombast and her like liberation that charms him um and it's even said several times that you're not really supposed to find her physically attractive i don't think i don't know like i think that she's like pretty in this movie and mm. but they definitely have other women that are made to be much much more attractive in this movie mm. than her physically yeah. I, I I think it's the creation of the character and what they attribute to the reasons why she acts the way she does. I think on the exterior, the surface level stuff is exactly like the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. But the motivations and the character development they do of like why she acts in those ways is what makes her different from right. those other characters. And allowing you to like allowing that character to breathe in a lot of ways by giving her backstory and giving her reason for doing what she's doing and putting her in a position where she's willing to walk away from this guy. She likes a lot because she's not willing to be with somebody who has like a bunch of problems or who's crazy. Right. Like when she thinks that he's crazy, she's, you know, I'm not going to get this in my life. Mm -hmm. There's a, a really funny slash depressing Reddit, um, subreddit called uh, men writing women badly. And it's, it's abysmal. Like you read like some uh -huh. of the dialogue that like male writers put in like female characters, mouths and descriptions, right. like proud breasts. And I don't know, there's just all kinds of like these ridiculous things. Uh -huh. And I think this is an example of like a male writer writing a woman character pretty well, you know, yeah. where. Well, Nicholas, Nicholas Myers is a good writer overall. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I've only read one book that he's ever written, which was the Seven Percent Solution, the Holmes book that he. Oh right, right. Wrote. Um, oh, that's really funny when Wells thinks he's being all clever by by calling himself Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah. And like people are like, right, Sherlock yeah, Holmes. Yeah, it's it is funny. Um, but yeah, that's a good book. I mean, it's it's one of my favorite, maybe my favorite book that Doyle didn't write about Holmes yeah. and. I really like that it explores the nature of the Watson Holmes relationship and really gets into Holmes's addictions. Yeah. Um, but uh, I like that. And then it's like, I mean, he, like, look, I mean, the, I think most people would agree, like, out of all those Star Trek movies, Wrath of Khan's the best one. He wrote and directed that. Sure. You know, I mean, so uh, he's, uh, you can definitely see where the, you're right. From a directing standpoint, he's young, he doesn't know what he's doing yet. But as a writer, I mean, I, I think the, the, the script's pretty solid overall in this. And it's like, I don't have a lot to say about it because it's just a fun movie. It is. I, I, it's an enjoyable hour and 40 minutes and of, of, a, of a crime slash sci-fi you know, thriller. Yeah. And again, like the way that he writes dialogue and character interactions, I think is... And maybe it's the way that the actors are delivering I, I, it. Yeah, I think that helps a lot. Um, I, I think Warner and McDowell work really well. They do. Other, and I think McDowell and uh, Steenbergen work really well off each other. Yes. I mean, there's definitely like... You definitely feel like there's true chemistry between them. Right. But because it's so Victorian still in the way he's acting, it's all very under the surface to which some is, degree. What's really funny about when, like, when he finally concedes to like make out with her and he's like... 
I don't want you to think I'm taking advantage of you. And right. she's like, buddy, I'm practically raping right, you. Right, like, just, right. Just, yeah. Yeah. That's good. Did they occur like this movie? He had a lot of problems with the direction, but he thought that the performances were good. Uh, he found the ending to be unsatisfying, maybe. Nope. Really? Clever and well calculated. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Did he no. complain about the direction? No, not really. So, you know, um, I'm looking up uh, David Warner now. Mm-hmm. Um, Time Bandits, he plays Evil. Right. Tron, he plays Sark. Um, mm. He's in my favorite version of Christmas Carol as Bob Cratchit. Hmm. Um, well, not my favorite, like my second favorite. Uh, of your eight favorites, yeah. Right, I have a lot. <laughs> I really like that that story. Um, yeah, he's in a bunch of... He's in the in the Mouth of Madness. Right. I remember him, yeah. In that. I don't know. I like him right. a lot. Yeah, and I, I like the way he yeah. looks, and he definitely has yeah. that... <clears throat> I don't know, like He 70s. looks like an asshole. He does. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good. I mean, he, he plays a heel well. I mean, I like him. Okay. You ready to move on to number two? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so number two on your list is A Clockwork Orange. From 1971, directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Malcolm McDowell, Patrick Magee, uh, and Philip Stone. Has a 90% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 93% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie, I suppose, and then what you like about it so much. Uh, so the premise is um, McDowell plays uh, Alex DeLarge, who's the leader of a gang of hoodlums. Um Teenage hoodlums is the implication, like they're high school age. Yeah. Um, he calls them as droogs. Uh, they're, they drink, they fight rival gangs, they're rapists and bullies and just generally terrible people. Um, they go through a series of basically like crimes that they commit. Um, there's a falling out because the rest of the gang feels like they should be doing crimes that yield like higher monetary returns and um alex is just more into the visceral nature of like the violence and the well basically just violence um and the old in and out yeah but i mean that's violence sure um he's caught after murdering a woman um the whose house they break into ostensibly to steal a bunch of like jewelry and Really, he's just there to rape the woman. Right. But he murders her accidentally. Um, ends up going to prison and is made part of a experimental program where criminals will basically be reprogrammed to have aversions to violence and sex. Um, through, like, not even post-hypnotic, but, um, like, it's visual Operational conditioning. And, yeah, conditioning. Yeah. Um, Gets out of jail and is basically ineffectual, uh, where he's unable to, like, defend himself from the society that he kind of helped create. Um, goes back, uh, is beaten by his former gang gang friends, gang mates, droogs or whatever, who are now police officers. Right. Um, is nursed back to health by the guy whose wife, the guy who he beat into a crippled state and whose wife he raped to the point where she eventually committed suicide. Um, 
the man doesn't recognize him at first, but then realizes that it's him. Uh, so him and some colleagues basically torture Alex um, until Alex tries to commit suicide. Um, in the act of trying to commit suicide, basically erases his reprogramming <clears throat> and ends the movie in the hospital, like sort of back to being the person that he was prior to um, the conditioning. Um, it's science fiction in the sense that it does take place in a dystopian near future. Um, easily the most, well, I mean, it's, it's just what society became in a lot of ways, minus like the rampant, like gang wars. And even that, I guess you could argue like, while not as stylized is still like a true, like kind of prescient portrayal of like what the world would become. Yeah. I think if you take away the excesses of what Burgess uh, here, Kubrick's directing, but Burgess is writing, if you take away the excesses of it, um, I think it's pretty prescient. The idea that it's uh, adults are almost like afraid ineffectual, of uh, right, and are afraid of children, right, and it's all about what they want as opposed to well, they haven't raised their children at all and have in right. turn created this sure army of right. like monsters basically that yeah. does whatever they want. Right, they're not told no. Um, yeah. very myopic view of religion um authority uh society and um government in general um one of the most roundly deplorable characters to ever be like the main character in a movie i think sure um he's a bully a rapist he's a thief but he's a thief for no reason he's just a thief because he's a sadist i mean there's one of the things that i've I, I I haven't seen this movie in, I don't know, 20 years maybe before this time and maybe a little longer than that. Um, one of the things I noticed this time that I found like really compelling was when he comes home from the night out where they commit the, um, where they rape the, the writer's wife and they like basically cripple the writer. Um, and he has the wad of cash in his hand that it's dumped into a drawer that's just full of random money and watches and jewelry and things and so you can tell that he's not stealing from people because that's how he makes his living or because he's like really a thief he's just taking trophies almost like a serial killer sure and so even though this is kind of predates the idea of like profiling and whatever mm -hmm. i mean he definitely you know for if you imagine him as like a 16 17 year old kid shows all the signs of somebody that will eventually be like he's a thrill killer. He does the things because he enjoys the, the ultra violence as they call it. Um, just the idea of committing violence against people. Um, the only time that he engages in any kind of sexual act that's shown to be like, just from the pure, I don't know, like hedonistic thrill of like having sex is when he brings the two girls back to his place and then like they speed that up and they almost make like a benny hill sketch right when he's like repeatedly just having sex with them throughout the day yeah um and oh. it's the only time that it's not like where sex isn't like a violent act committed against a woman right which was one of the few changes that kubert makes is because um like everything there is um consensual with those girls and in the book they're they're 10 years old and it's rape yeah that's pretty pretty horrible i don't think you could put that in a movie even in like 1971 um and it's it's interesting because he's a very 
literate character and he's speaking to you in a way that is very Shakespearean almost his language. Sure. Um, and definitely a stark, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's, it's very different from the language that anyone else his age uses. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other droogs are very lowbrow, like Mono, especially symbolic dim times, is like, yeah. like right. portrayed as like almost like borderline, like mentally handicapped. Right. <clears throat> um, but you know, he's very eloquent very charming but also just incredibly disgusting the entire time and it's it's funny because like we were talking about you know a little while ago about the bruce dern character in silent running and this is a character where it's it's written in a way that's meant to be charming but charming in like an incredibly horrific kind of way almost like mm-hmm. almost like like a prelude to like a Ted Bundy in sure. real life. Sure. Where it's somebody where you feel like if you met him, you might be charmed by him, but the undercurrent of violence and misogyny and, you know, he's got this one thing that he loves, which is Beethoven's ninth. Like he loves music. Right. Um, and this like love of art that underlies like all this, hatred and brutality and callous you know regard for like humanity Mm -hmm. and he's also a coward i mean like every chance he gets to basically like try and weasel his way out of anything he does i mean he's not he's very he's very much a character that takes advantage of a situation to his own gain, but only does it when he knows that the odds are in his favor. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a brutal movie. It's a very difficult movie to watch at times. Um, we talked about this, I think we talked about this when we talked about Henry in the, whatever that was, 87 horror movies. And we also talked about this in terms of like, the way that Tarantino filmed the Manson family in mm-hmm. Once Upon a Time. It's nudity that is never titillating nudity. It's always right. like there's grotesquerie. And even though it's like beautiful women that he's using in this mm-hmm. movie, there's never a time where you're like aroused even a little right. bit because it's right. all just yeah. gross, violent, uncomfortable sexuality. And it's sexuality as a weapon. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, the fact that his mask that he wears when they go out and commit these crimes is basically like a giant phallus. Right. He carries, you know, his his cane that's phallic that he uses to beat mm-hmm. people. Um, funny that, like, the one time that he, like, it's a, a blade cane. And the one time he unsheathes his phallus, it's like this tiny little knife. Yeah. Um, so maybe, like, speaking almost to his, I don't know, like emotional impotence maybe or something um it's also a pretty damning look at like and kind of again like pressing into our modern times um political parties willingness to use someone regardless of who they are for their own sure like benefit the fact that the the militaristic um 
I don't know what they would be called in Britain, but like the more establishment based party mm-hmm. wants to use them as an example of how like fighting crime works and how they're reducing right. crime. And then like the more like anarchistic um, elements, yeah. They want to use them to show like why this is unfair treatment of humanity, but only until right. they realize who he is and then they're just perfectly willing to murder him. Sure. Well, cause him to murder himself, basically, which right. is also like this, the, the, the writer putting him in a situation where like they're not technically killing him. He's killing himself. Right. Is. Yeah. That shot that he uses where Alex is in the room above and they show the writer sitting there with like, like looking upwards, much like Jack Torrance ends up doing in The Shining. Um, at the end of that movie when he's frozen in place but that like eyes up to the ceiling and that just kind of like but that like maniacal like grin and that shaking yeah and that camera just slowly pulls like the entire time it's great great shot yeah he's so masterful so amazing camera work in the movie um that's that's patrick mcgee right playing that role um it's also an interesting and it's it's really there's really brief moments where a lot happens and when mcgee hears him singing singing in the rain which is the song that he's singing when he got assaulted and his wife got raped mm-hmm. showing almost like the ptsd of him like mm-hmm. shaking and his eyes rolling up sure. in his head yeah. and like his mouth like mm-hmm. almost like a dead fish like popping open and right. closed and one of the other things that i love about this movie so i saw this movie when i was maybe 15 or 16, I don't know. Like, it was early on. Probably the second Kubrick, second or third Kubrick movie I'd ever seen after Full Metal Jacket and The Shining, I believe. Um, and I loved it when I first saw it, you know, and that was from, like, a teenage perspective. Um, but I immediately, like, went to the library and took out Burgess's book and was not nearly as impressed with the book as I was with the movie. And I think part of that is <clears throat> they use this kind of hodgepodge slang in the movie that's a combination of i think like some russian in like horror show and devotchkik and whatever um the like sing-songy like rhyming slang of like cockney like london and then the um just like some modifications of real words like viddy and stuff like that it's so much more effective when Kubrick uses it. And even though it's almost like another language, you can immediately understand what all of it means because of the way that Kubrick shoots. When they're talking about things, they show the thing they're talking about or the inflection or the facial expressions. Um, you asked, you, you texted me earlier today. Cause I, this is, I watched this movie today after time, after time, after I watched time, after time. And you asked me what I thought of it watching it this time. And my immediate response was because this movie has become so prevalent in pop culture, especially the look of the Droogs and Alex in particular with the bowler hat and the white suit and the one eye with the um, fake eyelashes on it. um, It almost feels like it's imitating something, but it's only because it's like influenced so i think the look of things itself, yeah. i mean you think about stuff like like the milk bar when they go there right. i mean that's like 
that shot of them sitting at the end of the milk bar with like the porcelain naked women around them, mm-hmm. just like all of them with the thousand yard stare at the camera, like as it pulls back through the bar is so iconic now. Mm-hmm. And you know, the scene with them raping the woman to um, singing in the rain mm-hmm. and just their look, like everything about it has become so iconic sure. that it's, it's the it's, stuff with the Ludvigo yeah. treatment or whatever. Yeah. Like Ludovico. Yeah. It's just really, um, yeah, with his eyes propped open, right, like, right. that's been imitated, sure. like, dozens of times, and right. it's just so weird to go back and watch something that was so influential and see it again after not seeing it for a long time, that there's times where, you, again, like, it's it's odd that it almost feels like, like a pale imitation of itself, but only because, like, you're so familiar with everything in it, mm. but still, like, it's it's amazing, Um I don't know if I would call it one of my favorite Kubrick movies. Like, it's probably the bottom half of Kubrick for me. But still, um, McDowell's performance is, you know, we just talked about, like, how much I liked him in Time After Time. This is the complete opposite character of that. Yeah, which I think is a testament to his ability as an actor. Right. And I, we, you know, we, we have talked off air about the fact that during the scene in Time After Time where Warner is, like, talking to him about the present day and how it fits his personality and wells mcdowell's character is so like horrified but he's watching on tv that it's like has to be like you you said this it has to be a direct parallel almost like a contrasting view of the same thing Mm -hmm. from him watching the violence and the sex and the nazis and clockwork orange um I don't know. Like I, I love the visual aesthetic of the movie. I think that he infuses enough near futurism in it where it feels like, like when he's walking to his um, his house uh, after the first like the first night where they do all like you know where they attack the guy and they rape his wife, and he's walking through this courtyard that's full of trash and discarded furniture. And it just feels desolate and post-apocalyptic. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. The one thing I wanted to ask you, and I didn't think about it until I watched it this time. Like, I had never noticed it before. Do you think that his mother is, like, maybe an aged prostitute of some kind? Or... Because she she says early on when she wakes him up, she's going to work in a factory. But mm-hmm. every time you see her, she's wearing miniskirts and... She has her hair done in like a really almost like um postmodern like tight fake curl. And I kind of felt like in the scene where he goes back home and Joe right. is there and yeah. he's taking his room that Joe and her are having some kind of sexual relationship. Yeah. I I, I mean I definitely I don't know about the prostitute thing. I definitely think you you're probably right to some degree about the the Joe thing. Um, I don't think they give you any necessarily like clear signs that that's the case. The only but... reason I think it is because she's not going to work in a factory dressed like that. Right. And the father is made, it, the father character is very similar, like many years later to the way Paul Thomas Anderson shoots, um, Mark Wahlberg's father at the beginning of Boogie Nights. Sure. Like a guy that's kind of checked out from what's happening with his family and yeah. but he's is, also like this character the which is i think it's great that it's philip stone that's it was just kind of like a kubrick regular 
because he plays uh, Grady in um, The Shining right. years later. But um, the fact that he's so ineffectual and he just... I mean, it's very, and probably the, the, the visuals drawing this parallel, and most people don't know my grandfather, but you do. But it's like, the idea of my grandfather sitting in that chair with the, with the, with the bald head, like, kind of scratching right. the back. Like, it feels very similar to that character. Right. Like, the kind of, like, you know, just, yeah, zoned out a little bit. Like, kind of just whatever happens, happens. But there's also weakness and ineffectualness to that. Like... And, and if the Joe thing is right, which it kind of seems to imply that this new son that's moved in almost is actually, like, her lover, that he's... He's, he's, he's cuckold. He's cuckold. Yeah. Right. right. I mean... And she's... So, I don't think that it's ever implied that there was a sexual relationship between Alex and his mom. No. But that no. she views him as, like, a replacement for her husband. Right. In the sense that she knows what he's doing when he goes out at night. Yeah. And he has no idea. And he's just kind of willing to accept whatever anybody says about it and yeah. believe the best of his son. Right. Where she knows that yeah. he's doing these terrible things but doesn't care mm-hmm. because she loves him. And yeah. there's, like, when Joe leans over and comforts her, mm-hmm. it's a little more intimate yeah. than just, like... I agree. I agree. Direct comforting. Yep. And they're not willing to, like, kick him out. I don't right. know. There's... I mean, that's such a minor plot point, it but is, it's just... Yeah. It would just struck me. Yeah, I, I never really it. thought about it much because I don't think they go a lot into... I, I think they purposely don't do much with the parents often just because they don't want to get into causation mm-hmm. of why he is the way that he is because that's not what Burgess is focused on. Um, yeah, I mean, I... Watching this again, like, I look, Kubrick's a great director and it's like pretty much every movie I think he's ever made just from pure direction cinematography like all those kind of things like he's a master and i I, i'm you're gonna see me probably never like criticize like those kind of things i might not like all of his movies or stories but overall like as a director he's fantastic so i i think the thing that watching it this time is like some of the something bothered me about it about the 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 thought behind it the, the the philosophy behind it and it's like i mean to me it's like what this what and distinction between the book and the movie but it's like this movie's a pretty faithful adaptation overall uh a couple minor changes and so a lot of it like depends on the way that kubrick films things and of, of kind of how you tell that story even because it is pretty faithful so the story at its core, it seems to me, now that I've aged and like, you know, and I, some of this I got when I was younger and I get more of it now, is really the idea that is really like kind of like a, a critique of Skinner and oper, operational like condition or operant conditioning or whatever. Like, it, that's, that's really what it seems to me is that you can somehow fix people the way you want them. And they were doing this kind of stuff with homosexuals sure, like at the, I mean, around this time. They period. still do. Well, they still do, right? But it's like, this is when it kind of started, like, some of that stuff, like, with the kind of conditioning of, like, you know, making them, putting them in uncomfortable situations and making them look at right. nude males and stuff. Like, you know, trying fear, to... It's also fear therapy, and there's other things that are involved. Right. And, like, the idea that you can solve crime in this way, it's definitely a critique of that. So, um, and... I like and it's and it's kind of like Burgess. I think is trying to get to the heart of like, like 
you know, ultimately the statement that's being made in this is that it's better to have an authentic uh, deviant. Right, than an inauthentic. Like killer, like uh, rapist and killer than an automaton. Like, and, and um, I mean, I think that's a very, I think it's a very difficult conversation and question to, to right. pose, you know, which, which is one is better overall. But in the book, Burgess shows a grown-up Alex years later who has, through, like, just seeing a uh, one of his old friends have a family, like, something kind of sparks in him and he changes on his own and he does stop all that lifestyle and kind of settles down and has a kid of his own and is married. And it's... And and I think the, the book even more so is pushing the idea that it's, like, you know, conditioning, you know conditioning's bad like you know it's all it's doing is it's unnaturally prohibiting people from doing those kind of things real true change has to come from within and with him being a catholic there's probably other things you can read into that like to some degree so it's like i what ebert likes and i think when i read ebert's review who ebert really he gives it two stars but god he hates this movie like it's it's a really bad like negative review of this movie, despite it giving him two stars. And he says that um, he thinks that Kubrick sympathizes with Alex too much through the filmmaking, as if Alex is the hero of the piece, and that it's too much that he identifies with Alex. Like, in terms of, like, always shooting him from below... To make sure, like, the, the things that you do as a filmmaker to kind of make people heroic or show sympathy, he's doing all those things to make Alex appear the, the protagonist right, of the movie. Right, but that's missing the point. Like, so, I'm, I'll talk about that, and then I want to go back and talk about what you said about the Skinner and, like, the conditioning. Mm-hmm. Um, Kubrick does that on purpose... To make you uncomfortable as the viewer. Like, he uses all these, like, film tropes that you would do with a protagonist for the antagonist. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to make you feel intimate with the Alex character. Like, he's not just the villain of the movie. He's the hero of the movie, but he's the villain. And you're meant to be uncomfortable watching him. Like, it's... It, it draws you into a character that you wouldn't normally, in any normal film, be drawn into. Like, there would be someone that's the counterpoint to that that would be your focus. And that would be the guy that you're trying, that, whatever, like, the driving force to get rid of. Mm-hmm. But that's, the entire movie is focused around him. And I don't know, there's, like, very few scenes where Alex isn't the central, like, focus of the scene. Like, a couple, maybe? Where they show other people. Right, yeah, yeah, He's He's there pretty much. It's all, He's almost always on screen. And even if he isn't on screen, he's in the scene. He's just, it's being shot. Right. So, it's on purpose to elicit mixed emotions from the viewer. Where you're meant to identify with him and then question, why am I identifying with this psychopath? Mm-hmm. Like, that's on purpose to make you uncomfortable and make you feel, like, question your own morality and your own decision making. And I think that that's, like, to your point, 
like i agree that there is like some condemnation of like conditioning and like that branch of psychology that you know is it better to have a like an authentic person or mm-hmm. an automaton that you've created you know like even right. if the authentic person is like a bad person you know wouldn't you rather know like what someone truly is rather than like being around somebody that has this in them and right. it's can be conditioned where they don't show it but it's it's a broader condemnation i think of like society and religion and politics of the time like coming out of the 60s and into the 70s especially in britain where you know like this is le- i mean this is early 70s but even leading into the 80s you know homosexuality is a list is still like a crime that you can go to prison for um there's a lot of like britain still trying to hold on to the like the rule britannia like version of themselves from like the early like like 19th century mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know they're they never show anyone that's in a position of authority there's one character in that's in any position of authority that's presented in a positive way and that's the chaplain even even he's like he's just a doofus to some he's degree. just using alex right to meet his own ideal of what religion is capable of because he thinks that through god alex can be cured because he doesn't even, you know that's and that's one of the more brilliant scenes in the movie when alex is reading the bible and is imagining himself as a centurion driving christ forward with his lash yeah and then laying down with his wife's handmaidens being fed grapes right and the the chaplain is seeing this guy like pouring in the bible but it's what he's taking out of the bible yeah it's more it's it's Mm. the guard like the main um Mm. the Mm. main guard from the prison who's never abusive he's never demeaning he just is authoritarian you're here to do your time you know, he wants things to be done the right way, but never abuses Alex, never, you know, it's the one time where he's not being struck or attacked or in like, I mean, it's aside from like the pedophiles that are in jail with him, it's the safest that he is in anything is being in this environment. And maybe that's the environment he belongs in. Like the Mm -hmm. authentic person probably belongs in jail. Right. But again, like, it's a condemnation of politicians using people for their own ends just mm-hmm. to stay elected. You know, the church using people to show the power of, like, especially the Church of England, which you, you and I aren't that familiar with. And I think it's really important that it's not the Catholic Church, it's the Church of England that they're right. talking about. Yeah. That what the Church of England uses people for, what society uses people for you know the fact that the droogs like two of them become officers and that's part of the overall like drive to reduce crime is by Mm -hmm. taking these thugs right and indoctrinating them into the system of law enforcement Mm -hmm. where they're still thugs and the writer even says like the police always are dropping the people they've beaten off here be beaten off the people they've like beaten (laughs) they're dropping them off right that's that's a completely different movie. Um, <laughs> the people that they've beaten, they're dropping them off near his house because it's at the outskirts of town, and no one can see it. And right. like so, yeah. very anti-authoritarian. You know, it, it's similar to how Kubrick does The Shining, which he takes this rambling haunted house book by Stephen King and turns it into a complex psychological examination of addiction and 
I guess like nature versus nurture and fate and just like the family dynamic of dealing with someone who's an addict and an alcoholic and wraps it in like a horror movie. You know, this is an examination of like man in society and you know, the place of like the criminal in society and how, you know, society views like the individual and like wraps it in this dystopian near sci-fi package you know what i mean sure and i think that's where kubrick said is most brilliant and you can look at that with like full metal jacket and barry linden like it's always like he does genre movies that are about something else and yeah. even though this movie is probably it's pretty straightforward you know and it's weird that ebert looks at like him as sympathizing with alex because i don't think he does i think he's i think kubrick is disgusted with Alex, I just think that he's forcing you to question whether you're disgusted with Alex. Like, are you titillated by watching Alex rape a woman? Are you titillated by watching Alex beat up people with his his cane? And like, you know, are you cheering for Alex when he asserts his dominance over the droogs by knocking Georgie and Dim into the water? And then like, you know, like basically saying like, I'm still in charge and you're going to do what I say. You know, and if you are, then you question your own morality. Why is he chained? Like, look, I, I get your point. Like, you, you, you can't show 10-year-olds getting raped. Why has he changed the scene to make it consensual, at least, though? I think because if somebody's... You can't... The best villains have an element of humanity to them. They have to, or else it's a cookie cutter. You know what I mean? Like, even Dracula... And well, I mean, you know, isn't that? I mean, isn't the, the the element of humanity inside of Alex's character already established with Beethoven, though? Like, that's really what that is. That's the symbol. Is like he still has some kind of humanity. He can appreciate art. Like, sure. I, I mean, if you need just, anything more than that, like for the I don't know. I think there's art. complexity to it. I think that yeah. it's. I think it's it's meant to portray number one the fact that Alex is like. Number that that sex is like a disposable thing that it's just a thing that you know he's doing yeah to pass the time and I I I I don't know yeah I don't know there's something that makes me uncomfortable I I'd have to go back and watch it again and maybe like study it some more because the uh, I get what you're saying and I, I can probably go along with it to the point there there there's something muddled to me about the the politics of it. And that I, I'm still just confused on, like, what the point is of, like, the way Kubrick does it. You know, and, it's one of those things, too, though. And we, we've talked about this with movies before, that there's films that take place in a very specific period of time when they were being filmed. Yeah. Not, not necessarily what's happening in the movie, but what's happening around the movie sure. in the real world. And it's really difficult, I think, to... Especially with the British, because there's so much in right. Britain that right. is right. kind of alien to us in yeah. the way they view things. And there has to be something with the Houses of Parliament. Yeah. You know, that like maybe at this time Kubrick's like yeah. making a statement about. Right. In the same way that like The Shining is more universal because yeah. addiction and abuse and sure. like those things are universal concerns. Mm-hmm. But we, we, we watched something recently we talked about. 
And the same discussion came up because it was like, how do we know what it was like at yeah. that point? Like right. not living through it. And yeah. I, I think it's similar here. But again, yeah. I don't think you're ever supposed to th- sympathize with him or cheer for him or... Right. Or you're supposed to question yourself if you do. So, mm-hmm. and the fact that we can talk about it now for whatever sure. like a half hour, you know, means that there's a lot of complexity to it and a lot of value to it as a yeah as a movie. Did uh, Dave Kerr like this movie? Hmm. He thought it was too violent. He thought it was too gratuitous. Um. He found that it was technically adept, but the ending was muddy and it left too many questions. He, um, he doesn't even get to like anything about the direction of this movie. A very bad film. Snide, barely competent, and overdrawn. That enjoys a perennial popularity, be- perhaps because its confused moral position appeals to the secret Nietzscheans within us. It's a movie that Leopold and Loeb would have loved, endorsing brutality in the name of nonconformism. At best, Stanley Kubrick's 1971 film suggests an animal house with bogus intellectual trappings. But the trappings, the rationalizations and spurious arguments, are what make it genuinely irresponsible, genuinely abhorrent. Right, well. (laughs) Oh, Dave Kerr. That's the most heated I've seen Dave Kerr, though. Like, that's, uh, that that is saying something. Like, usually it's like a kind of a passive um, snideness, but... Like, that's, that's seriously, like, some, yeah, some it's, straight it's, heat from Dave Kerr. It's tough because, like, I saw this movie in, like, 23 mm. years after it came out. Right. And, obviously, by that point, I'd seen stuff that was much worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not, like, quite as emotionally draining, but still, like, sure. much more horrific. Yeah. So, it, it, that's another thing, too. Like, contemporaneous reviews of this kind of stuff, it's difficult because the world is so much different. Right. Like, even when we were in our, like, late teens, early 20s, and it was in, like, 1971. Do you think these sensitive reviewers, and this will be the last <clears throat> thing we talk about this, but it's like, do you think these sensitive reviewers, and by sensitive, I'm not using that as a, a slur, um, you know, these educated, you know, like, right, right. you know, white men, uh, do you think that being put in the point of view of Alex makes them so uncomfortable that... They have this visceral reaction. Oh yeah, to it. I think that's why they have, especially trouble. Eber, who we know was bullied from past reviews himself when he's a kid, right. and made fun of and stuff like that. Being put in the point of view of his uh, bullier, like you know, do you uh, yeah, hundred percent. Like, and like, I also think that again, from like a psychic perspective of the time, like you're. When did the Vietnam War end? 74? Right? Yeah, somewhere around there. So you're in the midst of the Vietnam War. Sure. Oh, yeah. You're... Right in the middle of it. In a time where people are, like... Monks are burning themselves alive. And you've got... We we talked about the Manson murders, like, extensively. You have that. And I think that there's... From, like, a sensitive perspective, there's just this feeling of... How much is too much when it comes to this? You know what I mean? And, like... They just don't, like, we can look back, like, through the lens of, you know, perspective of, like, time and see value in it. But maybe at the time, like, it's difficult to see that value when you're surrounded by, like, such abject horror. And all these people are people that, you know, grew up under the specter of, like, 
World War II and nuclear annihilation and several wars, you know, that, that had come and gone in their lives yeah. with, you know, thousands and thousands of Americans like dying in these wars. And, you know, it, it probably is like a little more difficult. Yeah. Whereas for us, like our wars are mostly fought and not, not to like diminish, you know, anyone that's like died in like the wars during our lives, but it's much more remote and much more fought from far away with like drones and missiles and oh, sure. you know we really haven't lived through like a time where we've seen you know people drafted people right. like that we know like dying in armed right. conflict where they were on sure. the ground right so right. for us it's much more distant and yeah you know like not real and maybe it's just more difficult when it's right like when it feels more real to you for you to yeah i don't know yeah, it's like funny. I, I I didn't realize how much like I agree with you. I guess like uh, when I watch it because I just read my notes on this because I forgot that I wrote notes uh, of what I thought, um, and I said that I I think he's showing that Alex is a natural result of a world with uncaring parents, fixations on porno art, which is a Vincent Canby term, um, you know. Uh, and then torturous, torturous and violent uh, oh. resistant movements, totalitarian governments, etc. And that he's a and that's actually a fantastic point. And I meant to bring that up when I was watching the movie today. I was thinking about it, but I forgot. The art in this movie, even when it's not like abjectly pornographic, which mm-hmm. mostly it is, right. even the art in his parents' house, yeah. I believe those are stills, like blown up images from pulp magazines where it was women in like mm. bondage mm. The, there's the one scene where they're in the living room yeah when joe is there and there's a picture of a woman above his like above their couch mm-hmm. <clears throat> i might be wrong with this but i'm almost positive that that's like a famous piece of pulp art right that's just like been enlarged just yeah. to be her head but it looks really familiar it might even be like from a movie <laughs> um and I don't know what, but I, like, it's definitely, like, that's the normalization of overt sexuality to the point where it's, like, commonplace and nobody cares. Which maybe, again, that's the point of the scene with him having the sex with the two women. Yeah. Is that it's just this commonplace thing that you're not even supposed to, like, really... Because yeah. it's filmed in a way where it's not necessarily sexual. I mean... Right. They're having sex, but there's nothing, like, erotic about it. It's like, like I said, it's like a Benny Hill sketch. Right, yeah. Like, you could put that Benny Hill music to it, and it fits right. perfectly. It's true. So. Yeah. yeah, my final thought was, he's only slightly worse than all the rest of them are. Yeah, he's just more honest about right. how terrible he is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's move on to number one on the list is uh, 1979's movie, Russian movie, Stalker. Uh uh, Andrei Tarkovsky is the director, and I'm not even going to try the names of the actors in this because I will butcher all of them. So um, it has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics. That's 37 reviews. Um, I think seven of them from top critics, and a 93% from audiences, uh, which I also I was surprised it was that high, honestly, um, from audiences. But did you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and um, what you like about it so much? I mean, so at its core, the plot is pretty simple, incredibly basic. Yeah, um, takes place in an unnamed time and place, presumably Eastern European or Russian, but that's never specifically said. Yeah, 
um, where there's this area that exists that there may have been some extraterrestrial activity in that's caused the very nature of the place to warp and become uninhabitable to humans. Except there are certain people that have this natural attunement to the place that are called stalkers um, that can lead you through it with relative safety mm-hmm. because they can intuit where there's traps and mm-hmm. barriers and things like the landscape changes and time shifts and they can kind of intuit where those areas are and where it's safe to walk. Um, so none of the characters have names in this movie. Um, but the stalker, uh, is a guy that lives with his wife and his daughter who's intimated early in the movie to possibly be mutated in some way. Um, monkey monkey. Yeah. Um, and he's leaving her much to her dismay. You find out that he spent time in jail for going into the zone uh, the zone is what this area is called. Yeah. Um, he leaves because he has a job to escort uh, a physicist and a writer into right. the zone. Yeah, the professor and the writer. Professor, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, the professor who wants to go for scientific research purposes is what it said early in the movie. The writer who has kind of lost his inspiration right. and wants to go to kind of like reinvigorate that and see these things. Um they have to go through these crazy machinations to get past um, the armed forces that are guarding the zone. But once they get in, no one will follow them because Mm. people are afraid of it. And then basically the premise is there's this room in the middle of the zone where if you go there, it'll grant your, your wish. Like you can get a wish granted, but the one person that they know who had that happen became like incredibly wealthy and then killed themselves like almost immediately afterwards. Um, this guy known as uh, Porcupine, they call him. Porcupine in the movie, is, is who was me- a, the mentor, of a the previous stalker, stalker right. and yeah, the mentor of him. Um, so the majority of the movie is them going through this desolate, ghostly, um, destroyed area with like the remnants of civilization that have been overgrown by nature, but it's weird nature, like it's almost like alien, like foliage and landscape. Um, trying to get to the room. Um, the professor reveals that he went there with the intent of like detonating a nuclear warhead to destroy the room. Um, but doesn't like it's talked out of it and just, I don't even know. Like, oh, and then you find at the end that, um, monkey, his child, um, is, I guess it's, I don't know if it's specifically stated, implied to be like a... Telekinetic. Right. Well, implied to be like a direct result of him being in the zone. Oh, absolutely. Like yeah. being like, inf- yeah. like infused with like whatever this uh-huh. alien power is. Right. And that she's telekinetic as a result because sure. she's moving. And I think honestly that's intimated early in the movie, even though they kind of hide it with the approach of a train. That when they're laying in bed together, there's the um, saucer of water mm-hmm. that vibrates and moves. Yeah. Like without any sound, yeah. Um, so it's 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 a very for being a movie where there's not much describable action that occurs. Mm-hmm. It's visually it's incredibly complex and has maybe 
easily among like the best sound design yes. and dubbing of like the way that the way that the sound of things like wind and water and footsteps and just ambient noise well just that train approaching in the beginning right and then like you can hear it coming and then going away and it's it's so well done right like, the, you know yeah I, the the ebb and flow of sound like when they're in the um when they're in the tunnel when they've lost the professor and mm-hmm. when they eventually like come back around and like time is looped and they're back with him and they like the stalker realizes that they've kind of like been in like a trap at that point mm-hmm. and you hear the waterfall long before you see the waterfall but it's done in such a way where it like the sound like kind of moves through your head mm-hmm. and moves through the camera right and is it's it's haunting and disorienting the way mm-hmm. that he uses sound in that movie and the way that like landscapes are shot like everything feels the sound of like the animals like the hooting and howling mm-hmm. of that one like whatever it is that's out in like the fog and the dense whatever the undergrowth that might be human and they like no one knows like they never know what it is and they don't show you there's so much just like alien ambiance to everything yes. about it and yep. I mean, Tarkovsky shoots it, like, in this gorgeous, semi-washed-out, like... I mean, the first part of the movie is all sepia tone. So when... Before they get into the zone, everything is shot in sepia tone. Mm -hmm. And it feels dirty and grimy and diseased. Uh And then once they get into this place that they're not supposed to be, everything is lush. But, like... But it's and it's shocking the transition. Oh, and it's, it's I, I heard a professor describe it as it's almost like and it's and it's accurate. I, I don't know how he pulled this off, but it being sepia tone for the first like forty minutes or whatever, she said that it was like um, when it becomes color, it's like you've never seen a color movie ever before, right? And it's yeah. like and it is. She's exactly right. It's shocking when they're sitting there on that hillock or whatever, and it's like. You can see the remnants of civilization, and a lot of it you can't even tell what it is. It's like falling over telephone poles and like weird metal things like sticking out, and cars. You know, when they come across that first car, and there's like the bodies in it that are Mm -hmm. like looking at something, right? But something from like the far distant past, yeah. But when they're sitting on that, you know, they're on that rise, and the stalker's like moved off to kind of acclimate himself to the zone. Mm And just the green of the, the leaves and the grass and, like, the blue of, like, the faraway distant. Like, you can kind of see, like, the shapes in the distance. And and I guess, like, this was an old power plant, right, that he was filming at? Like, yeah, I think it was some, two different power plants that he filmed at. Like, the, the tile? Like, the random... Well, for this version of the movie, because this right, was actually like the third three, version yeah. of the movie. There's, like, random, like, tile work on the ground where you can see, like, mosaics that used to be there. Mm-hmm. and Right. It's just, it's so otherworldly yeah. and dreamlike. Yeah. And, and the fact that he holds those shots for as long as he yes. does. Like, I can't remember. I saw the numbers, but it's like, this movie is two hours and 43 minutes. Yeah. So that's like, you know, a hun- uh, what, like 163 minutes or whatever. Uh, and it's like something like there's a hundred and 
71 shots or something. I'm making that number up, but it's close. Right. And it's like basically, so it's almost like an average, like a minute of the shot. And like some of these shots go on for. Well, right. There's, there's very little where there's like, like concurrent quick cuts. It's very seldom. And like the times when it, they're not even like quick, but when they cut like over the, a small period of time, it's meant to build tension and meant to like, make you question like showing you what they're seeing but like what's seeing them like it always makes you feel like this is this place that it infuses with like such a i don't know like almost like an alien intelligence like is watching them back right and like waiting to see what they do i can see that yeah that's good like the shot of um when the writer kind of like disobeys the stalker um the stalker and is like going towards the mm-hmm. the room like early on in the movie well i guess it's not even early it's like an hour right hour and yeah. 10 minutes in but and it's like their perspective his perspective the room's perspective their mm-hmm. perspective his perspective the room's perspective the sound of him getting called back then like three quick cuts between those three things again that you never know where did that come from was something like was it him was it them mm-hmm. you know it's it's just so amazing and we we've talked about this with lynch before it's like yeah the menace of like empty places and yes. the fear of like small things that shouldn't be scary like a well or a pond or mm-hmm. again like a burned out car sure that may or may not because I don't know that you ever really know because they don't say it, but it looks like there's corpses in there yeah. that are like melted together because you can kind of see an arm and you can kind of see a couple of heads. Right. And you can kind of see that they're turned towards something. Mm-hmm. But it's just these small things that he films that it's just so effective and so yeah. ethereal and creepy at the yeah, same time. It's, and, it's so economical, like the way that he uses cuts because it, what it does is it makes the cuts effective then at that point. Right. You know, and... But beyond that, um, it allows you to. I think it's what actually makes the movie interesting, at least to me. I, there's a lot of people that are gonna would watch this movie and they think it's boring because it's so slow. Yeah. But I think what actually captivates me so early on in this movie, and like because it's like once you start watching, like if you watch ten minutes, and if you get make it past ten or fifteen minutes, it's like. You're going to watch this movie I agree. because I think it's it, it it just sucks you in, and I think what why it is because like I think the 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 stillness of it a lot of times and like the the holding on like those shots for so long, it's trying it's like what's going on here? It, it adds mystery right to it. Like what actually is like happening and where is this going? And it's allowing you to contemplate. Right. What's going on in that scene? Because every little scene's almost a mystery. What's what's this person thinking? And and forcing you. There's fuck how to say it. There's a line in um in Lord of the Flies, at the end about um, the Navy man like using the destroyer in the distance as a crutch, of like his his connection to civilization when he's been confronted with like whatever like this rampant like anti-civilization i guess that's happened on this island Mm -hmm. and it's almost like the opposite here where it almost force it it never lets you 
become comfortable because the scenes are moving. It forces you to remain in these weird perspectives of things. One of the best examples, and it happens really early in the movie, there's actually two that I, I'm, I'm going to talk about. The first one is when his wife is imploring him not to leave, and then he leaves. Mm-hmm. And it holds on her writhing on the ground and crying right. for way longer than it feels like it should, to mm-hmm. the point where like it almost becomes pantomime in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. But it's really uncomfortable and alien. And... I don't know. There's just something really like ghastly about watching her do that. Right. And it immediately sets this tone that like, you're not allowed to really get comfortable with what you're seeing and you're going to be shown these things again, like in a Lynchian way, like far longer than you're comfortable watching them. And then later, one of my favorite shots in the whole movie is maybe a little less than halfway through. So it's when, he's finally forcing them to like follow his path. Like after the writer is basically right. like, I'm not going to whatever. <clears throat> and it's the professor walks and it holds the shot for a long time of him walking through the field. And then the writer starts walking and it's like still holds the same shot and the professor's further away, but then the writer's like moving away. And then the stalker finally moves. Mm-hmm. And that scene's probably like, four minutes long of a single shot of nothing. And it just feels so menacing and dangerous Mm -hmm. that like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's for like nothing being, I mean, like you, you've gotten the premise at that point that like these people are in like mortal danger Mm -hmm. just by being here and nothing is happening. And it still is like, so tense like watching them walk right it's like this trick of cinema it's like the ultimate trick of cinema it's in in the sense of it's like i was thinking about that when i was watching is like there's nothing here that you're just in a field right but it's like the idea that's like you know the 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 idea that it's like there's this character who says these things happen that you can't see and i'm going to tie some shit to a rock and throw it and nuts into uh, bandages right that's in the pan, right and it's like i'm gonna <laughs> throw it and then nothing still happens but it's okay to move now and you're watching this on film right like in some ways it's almost hysterical like that they've pulled this trick off like because god is that like that has it's not that like it's not that much money to spend <laughs> to go into a field and, right, you know, like have a dude throw throw shit and like it's it's okay now. Let's move on and but make it captivating because like, you're because you're treading a line between the absurd right. and the compelling, and like it never lets you go into the absurd, right? Like it's always compelling, right. and it's because. Because you believe, mm-hmm. even though you've seen nothing, because of this, it, uh, number one, I think it's, it's very, it's slightly overexposed where things feel brighter mm-hmm. than they should. And maybe that's because your eyes already has become attuned to the sepia tone, like right. early. Yeah. Like what you, you said mm-hmm. that that lady said, yeah. um, that it's like the first time you've seen color. So now mm-hmm. like you're seeing all these vibrant colors mm-hmm. and it feels like revelatory maybe or something right and because you like it allows you to suspend your disbelief so well 
that you're waiting for that thing to happen. Like you're waiting for that tension that he's built to like break with something. Mm -hmm. And he never lets you like have the relief of having that tension break. And again, like when you get to a point where like the writer's going towards the room. Right. Well, I also think like the Sepiatone thing is, I think it's putting you into the point of view of the stalker as well. And like the sepia tone color is is life in right, his everyday, it's, and it's, when he gets to the zone, yeah, it could never be as good as it's going to be for him, right? Like he's the only one that, even though he's wary and he's respectful of like the power right. there, he's the one that like as soon as he gets there, like oh, I just got to go be by myself for a little bit to like soak this all in, yeah, because to him it's home, right? And, and I think that's the major thrust of the movie, really, is he comes back, right? It's in color. So you think he brought it home? Well, I mean, right, because he, like, was right. in the room, so he brought it home with him or whatever. No, they don't go in the room. Like, I, I, th- I, I think it, I, my reading of this, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, is that I, I think what ultimately ends up happening is, like, here's a guy who, I'm not worried about the writer and the professor, even though I think they're interesting characters and what's going on with them, but it's like the stalker has this kind of, like, religious fervor about the zone. Right. And he's trying to find meaning in his life. And the meaning that he's found for himself is that he can... He, he can try to take people to the promised land that he himself can never use. And he... You know, that's that's what he's put on himself. Like, you know, is that he can lead. And he's... Tr- but he's still trying to find meaning in his life, you know? Like, that's what he thinks his meaning is. Like... Uh, there's this idea of like what you think and what's real and that's going on in this movie. So I think what happens is like, he looks at monkey and her disability as this bad, almost this bad thing that kind of happened, like as a result of the zone and the zone is this religious, you know, experience for him. And like, it's all in color and it's all bright right. when he comes back and it's in color. I think because in part, like, you know, even though he's kind of like lost his faith, in like what his meaning is in terms of taking people to the zone because he's like you know he says they've lost their faith like nobody has any faith nobody understands right right he's lost all that i think he's like you know you the next time you see him is he's with his family which that great shot because you know monkey can't use her legs and there's that great shot where it's almost like monkey's walking you just see her head right and then she's on his shoulders and he's sitting there with his family and i think like the the thing that he realizes is that in some ways, the zone is with him. So through, through her, my interpretation of that is different. Yeah, I think that I think the room is a MacGuffin in the movie. No, that's very possible. And I think that I don't know if the room actually exists. Yeah. I think that he gets his wish granted, mm-hmm. and I think that's his wish is to go back and be with his family, like that he doesn't feel compelled to be there you know what i mean like his whole life has been well he's spent 10 years in jail for this and it's the being compelled to like return to this place and almost using the professor and the writer as like his excuse to go back Mm -hmm. because that's where he feels and i think that's his thing is he wants to take it with him so he can feel right like he belongs but that's like i i think I think the idea that, like, there is this room isn't real because it's, maybe, I mean, like, you're right. It's it's him accepting it, right? And, like, that's, yeah. like, him getting what he wishes for. Yeah, whether the room exists or not, I don't think ultimately matters. Right, like, I always ways. take it as being that 
I think that they think it exists matters. I think that him telling them that it exists is just his way of driving them forward, like, through this place. Yeah. That you have this unknown destination, or this, like, spoken destination that you never see, but that it's there anyway. Like, it's just... And I've never read Roadside Picnic, so I'm not sure. Yeah, like, I didn't either. How it like, the like only person, fits in with that? Yeah, the only person I know that has is Wesley, and he um he wasn't a big fan of the book itself. He liked the movie much better. I don't know. I mean, it's it's beautiful. Like I wish that. I'm pretty sure that's right. You've um like you've played the games that this that are based. I played on the one game, yeah, the Shadow of Perpiot or whatever, and Shadow Shadow of Chernobyl is what it was called. Yeah. Um. There's other like. Yeah, there's video other, games yeah, based like in right. this general. Yeah, universe. it's a it, it has nothing to do with it except for the idea of the zone. Right. Like, uh, but I um, yeah, I the yeah, I, I think there's you know, I, I think we're saying somewhat similar things ultimately. But I think ultimately what he realizes, and I think it's really profound, is that it was always there. You know, right. like he was just not seeing it in the correct way, and the and the end the ending with her being telekinetic is imply that it's like yeah she might not her legs might not work but she's also she is an extension of the zone right and you know it's like it's, it was always there well she's the human evolutionary sure. step right as a result of this like alien interference possibly alien interference sure. into right like the world but yeah. then it calls into question why did porcupine kill himself right like he got oh it's the wish. most horrifying right it's the most horrifying thing in the entire movie to me right is, is is the for someone who's you know and, and you know this the listeners don't and they don't need to probably but it's like they don't care but as someone who's been like um chain smoking too much and watching you too much youtube like you know over the last few months trying to figure out like how the hell i want to live the second half of my life <laughs> um give yourself like, a lot of credit with that half thing <laughs> well it's at least half over that's right right um I, it's not. <laughs> I um I don't want to think about that. But the the idea that the search like to, to, to find out like you're trying to figure out you're trying to go to this room to like, you know, get what you want out of life. Right. And the writer wants inspiration, you know, and the writer's actually the one that figures it out after a while is like you know what and and this is the story of porcupine eventually is that the writer figures out he doesn't know why he's going there because inspiration's bullshit that's not the real right. reason he's gone there and what he realizes is maybe i don't want to know what i really want like it's better to go off and just be what i was than to actually find out what it is deep down that i want because sure. i might be horrified by the idea and that's the story of porcupine who accidentally killed his brother Right. And then goes into the room to try to save his brother. But gets something else. But gets something else because really when it came down to it, the money was more important than his brother's right. life. And that's horrifying. And that's also the allegory of the whole movie, too. Is sure. that Like early on, well, I mean early on, it's like the movie's so fucking long. But pretty early on, it said like, you know, they send the um, the rail car back. Because you, you can never go back the way you came. Like, you right. just have to go through it. Right. And either you die or you make it. But it's never, like, going back. And it's, mm-hmm. like, that's... I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, it's, like, basically Campbell's hero's journey in that respect. That, you know, you got to go into the woods and you're going to come out changed. But is that change, like, a good thing or right. a bad thing? Yeah. 
So I guess like in a positive way, in the stalker's case, like it's a good thing. I think ultimately in the stalker's case, I, I think in some ways all their cases is probably like they all ended up somehow slightly better. For right. Them. But to your point, like I think the stalker is the character yeah. that really matters. Right. Yeah. So. And I think he he he's reconnected with his family at this point, and I think that's the positive yeah. change in his life that he takes away. I mean, if you can if you can take a almost three hour long movie, like it's definitely worth watching. It's it's yeah. it's amazing. Like Absolutely. I think I, I texted you. I think this is probably like top fifty of all time right. for me, right. and that's saying a lot. Yeah, and this um, is the second time I've seen it, and I remember being blown away by it the first time, and I was still kind of blown away watching it again. Like probably like. 16 17 years later yeah and i thought took away more from it this time second yeah i agree and found it much more profound even than i did then right i agree with that yeah Yeah, this is like the third time i've seen it and i've enjoyed it like every time so and for a movie that's as long as it is that's something to watch it like that many times so right and still like take more like different things away every time you see it yeah quickly dave curl like this movie I don't know. I have no idea what Dave Kerr thought. I guess Dave Kerr. I don't know. No. Yes. I don't know. What Dave Kerr? Masterpiece. Okay. That's surprising. But yeah, that's good that Dave Kerr actually has good taste. Yeah. On occasion. (laughs) On on sometimes. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's our show for tonight, everybody. Thank you for listening. Um, Remember, if you want to contact us all, you can like us on uh, our Facebook page. Uh, contact us through there you can also contact us at two guys five movies at gmail.com uh, remember to share like subscribe that's the best way you can help us out uh, other than that i hope everybody enjoyed listening and have a great night yep thank you have a good night